Blood Raven proved to be a capable hand, but also a master of whispers who rivaled Lady Misery. And there were those who thought that he and his half-sister and paramour, Shiera Seastar, used sorcery to ferret out secrets. It became common to refer to his thousand eyes and one, and men both high and low began to distrust their neighbor for fear of being a spy in Blood Raven's employ. Yet Ares had need of spies, given the trouble that followed the great spring sickness. Summer came, and with it a drought that lasted more than two years. Many blamed the king, and many more accused Blood Raven. There were poor brothers who preached treason, and knights and lords as well. And amongst those were some who whispered a specific treason, that the black dragon must return from across the narrow sea and take its rightful place. Another perfect quote. Perfect because it contains so many of the elements covered in this episode on Blood Raven. And we're going to begin with him rising to the position hand of the king and cover his entire tenure in that office. But he was a hand that was also a master of whispers. That's power on a whole new level. And speaking of power, Shiera Seastar got a mention in the quote, and you know we're going to talk about sorcery, which is another form of power. And you know we're going to talk about prophecy because we're pretty sure that the same prophecy that Rhaegar discovered early in life that changed his whole arc is the same one that was first rediscovered by Ares I, who was king that made Bloodraven Hand. So we'll start as well with the story of the reign of Ares I. The Arcane King, a man as uninterested in his wife and fathering children as he was in ruling. This gave Bloodraven even more power, and their shared interest in the higher mysteries gave him a bond with the king, and quite a lot of trust, which didn't make certain other people happy. Such as Ares's younger brother, Makar, who is another big part of today's story, and the opposite of his bookish brother in so many ways, as far as we know, uninterested in the arcane, but tolerant of it probably, as we'll see, and not nearly as fond of Brynden either. Nobles and commoners alike whispered many rumors about Bloodraven, and Makar himself believed in some of those, and played a part in spreading them, in fact. But like it often is with gossip and rumor, the tales grow in the telling and often cease to be anything resembling truth, if they ever were in the first place. Especially true of tales told about Bloodraven, which of course means something we got used to in the last episode. <laughs> Bloodraven being blamed for everything. We talked about that a lot. And it's going to happen again in this one. As we always do with our historical dives, we find relationships to A Song of Ice and Fire proper as well. In this episode are parallels to Tywin, Tyrion, Varys, Stannis, Robert Baratheon, the Mad King, even Joffrey, and plenty more. And this episode has rebellions. Of course, the second and third Blackfire rebellions. We'll be going over from those in a different perspective. And there's also uprisings by the Peaks and the Greyjoys, which may have been related to the Blackfires in some way. Eh, maybe not, but we'll see. Despite the deaths we covered last episode, early in this era there were still a lot of living Targaryens and a lot of living Blackfires. From A Song of Ice and Fire proper, we're used to having very few, so you gotta wrap your head around this being a bit different. And by the time we finish this episode, and the era that we're covering in it, both of these families will have taken heavy losses, and a lot of the deaths will be, shall we say, 
premature? Not from natural causes, I mean. And given the level of spy games being played on both sides, Targaryen and Blackfire, plus other ambitious types in between, any death before someone's time has the potential to have a conspiracy behind it. There's always a little bit of mystery here, so there's a lot of fun things to dive into in that regard. So if you like intrigue, this episode has a lot. And by the end, we'll give you quite a lot to think about. But even then, the story won't be over, because this episode doesn't cover Blood Raven's whole life. We had a part one that covered his early life, and part three is gonna cover the end of his life. Well, not the end, because he's still alive, but up to that point. The point where he falls from power is where we're gonna end this one. Well, his political power, he falls from political power. He certainly doesn't fall from his other forms of power. In fact, maybe going to the wall enhanced that, but that'll be part three. Either way, this is all very exciting, isn't it? Mm, yes, I'm sure you agree. It's time to deliver more Blood Raveny goodness. So hello, welcome to another episode of History of Westeros podcast. I'm your host, Aziz. I uh, don't often say my name. It's kind of funny. I've been doing this for a long time, and a lot of times I don't say my name, and someone pointed that out, that there was a listener who suggested they didn't even know what my name was, and I'm like, huh. That seems kind of hard to fathom, but I realized that I hardly ever say my name. So, well, I'm Aziz. I want to say some shout outs to our important patrons who make this show possible. We're able to put in a lot of effort and get a lot of people involved very much because of that. It is the most important aspect to our existence. Starting with Jeff Gnarly, the long snapper, History of Westeros' first sword. And with great sorrow, I have to announce that Lord Mark of House Joseph, the snow in Winterfell, writer of Masla Cartho, the white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons, has passed at the age of 38. We had a benefit episode. It's only on YouTube right now because I wanted to have the ad revenue generate so we could give it to charity, to his family, in fact. And so we're gonna, but we're gonna keep showing the artwork because we like it and it was really good. And he, we got a new piece here. As you can see, this is the first time we've shown this piece. He didn't get to see it, unfortunately, but we're still gonna keep sending it to his kids. We also have Talanis the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Talarius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of Midnight Black. You can see new artwork here by Luke Fitzsimons. And Jinx of House Lyre, Green Queen of the Rainwood, rumored daughter of a woods witch, Rider of Irogenia, Sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. And we do have new art that just did make it in time for her. Here is Irogenia by Sanrixian, looking super blingy. Look at the cool rings on those talons. I like that's a great touch. Speaking of artwork, this episode features art from many people around the fandom, and it's something we've been trying to do a lot more over the past couple years, try to show off as much fan art as possible. If you want your fan art shown in an, es in an episode, if you want your fan art shown in an episode of History of Westeros podcast, hit us up. Good chance we'll use it. Um, of course, it has to be on topic, but still, we are very open to showing a wide variety of art. We really love fan art. We really love this whole part of the community. It has been nearly 1,000 years since the last Vikings built settlements and carried out raids on the Christian kingdoms of Europe, and still, they continue to fascinate us. From hit TV shows to comic book characters and superheroes, the Vikings and their gods are still very much a part of our world. Join Noah Tetzner as he rediscovers the lost history of the Vikings in his podcast, The History of Vikings. I've listened to The History of Vikings quite a bit. It's an excellent show because it's an interview show, and one of the great things about interview shows is that if it's done right, 
you find yourself connected to a variety of experts on a specific subject. Lovers of history know that there's so many different areas of history to focus on. Even one person focused on one small aspect of one culture's history can take a lifetime. So that's one of the things that I think is great about this show. So check out the History of Vikings and take a deep dive. History of Westeros is part of the Agora Podcast Network, a network of independent content creators making a wide variety of excellent shows. This month's featured Agora show is one I'm personally familiar with, one I listened to quite a lot before we ever joined the Agora Network, and that is the History of China podcast. You know, there's a long-running debate amongst Western historians about the size of a lot of ancient armies. A lot of times, the figures are exaggerated, but with Chinese armies... You hear numbers that sound exaggerated, but aren't. Like the size of their armies, Chinese history is big and it's amazing and it's epic. We all know that the concept of Game of Thrones is based on real world concepts, fighting over power, fighting over thrones. Well, imagine the types of stories that come from fighting over control over such large population centers. That's one of many things I find fascinating about Chinese history. The leaders amongst Chinese society rise through larger numbers of people. So join host Chris Stewart, who has lived in China for many years, as he takes you through the history of China. So let's get going. Blood Raven is, of course, the focus, but as always, the setting is a huge part of any episode we do, and we love playing with the setting and explaining it and setting the stage like that. This episode's only 90 years from the start of the Game of Thrones at the beginning. By the end of this episode, we'll be 65 years before Game of Thrones or so, and that's not very far out, right? So we've even got a few characters who were alive during this era that are still alive at the start of Game of Thrones. This covers the reigns of Ares and Makar, as I said, and it's very nicely split. 12 years, each of them were king. How nice, nice and perfect and even. You'll have to tell us which of the two reigns you thought was more interesting by the end. When we last left off, there had been a dying of dragons of sorts, uh, as Daron II and his heirs perished in the Great Spring Sickness. We should start back. There. <laughs> Prince Ares had become King Ares I of his name, and he never really had a nickname posthumously, so I'm making up one myself. The King of Scrolls. The World of Ice and Fire. It has been suggested by some that a likelier cause for Bloodraven's rise to power was the fact that Eris' interest in arcane lore and ancient history matched that of Rivers, whose studies of the higher mysteries were an open secret at the time. Bloodraven had already risen to prominence at the court, but few expected that Eris would name him Hand. When he did, it kindled a quarrel between the king and his brother, Prince Makar, who had expected the handship to come to him. Thereafter, Prince Makar departed King's Landing for Summerhall for years to come. As we told you in part one, Bloodraven and Ares were close well before Ares became king, and thus before Bloodraven became hand. And don't forget that it never appeared likely Ares would be king in the first place. It wasn't as unlikely as his nephew, Aegon the Unlikely, but it was pretty unlikely. The quote also indicates people thought it unlikely Ares would name Bloodraven to be his hand, so I guess there were all kinds of surprises happening. I expect Ares named Bloodraven hand quickly, not only because it's fairly typical to do so anyway, why wait? But in this case, there was extra urgency because there were a lot of big problems facing the realm, things that were time-sensitive. But also because Ares didn't want to rule, right? He, it's pretty clear throughout his reign that he was just 
not weak so much as just interested in scrolls and studying and not ruling. So all the more reason to go ahead and get a hand to take care of all this for him and not have to deal with it himself. Before the, the World of Ice and Fire book and app, we knew Bloodraven eventually went to the wall and had been in prison for a while first. Most of us assumed he was sent to prison by Makar, but that turned out to be the wrong assumption. So the implication is that Makar was either more upset with Ares than he was with Brendan, or he got over it, or some combination of both. But there's another major angle here. To kick us off with the story, it's easy to assume Makar was simply brooding. After all, he did stay there in Summerhall for years to come. But so what? That was his home. Why come to court? Sure, it's easy to imagine why he might go to visit his family, but it's also kind of easy to imagine why he wouldn't. Not everyone wants to hang out with their family, right? Plus, he already had a family of his own. He had six kids by then. Sure, his wife was dead, but that's a lot of kids. Now, in 209, we saw Egg in the Hedge Knight novella. At his time, he was not with his father, and the handship was still a few months away from being decided. Garon hadn't died yet. Egg was on his way traveling to Dorne. So we know Egg was not with Makar when the Great Spring Sickness broke out and all these people died. He probably, he definitely wasn't back either uh, in the Seven Kingdoms before Makar left the capital. So this all happened in between that. So that's important to note that timing. And while Egg was traveling, this is important, we get to hear about all that was happening around the realm. It was a bit of a travelogue. We get to hear about all these problems facing the king and the hand and the realm. Disease, drought, and Dagon. When Ares was crowned, King's Landing was not a safe place for Egg. I mean, he was down in Dorne, but it wouldn't have been a safe place for him had he been there. But really, it wasn't a safe place for anyone. Think of what Brendan Bloodraven's first job was, handling the very problem that killed the previous hand, the Great Spring Sickness. We don't have all the gory details of how exactly it kills. We don't get you know, specific symptoms. We just know that it's really bad and it works really quickly. So we're kind of using some parallels to the Pale Mare here to give you the gist of it, because it's also, well, it seems to be at least somewhat similar. Not only is it horrible to see play out, but it terrifies even brave men. Tyrion thinks, quote, even hard men like the Second Sons were terrified of mounting the Pale Mare. And Barristan notes that one of his bravest trainees fears it more than the foes besieging him in Marine. In other words, they Brave men often aren't daunted by foes, but sickness, you can't face that with the same kind of bravery. You can't fight it. You know, you, you can't wield a sword or a shield against it. It's, it's a different kind of thing. So my point is, yeah, sure, Makar, it was your hurt pride. You weren't happy about not being named Hand. It wasn't the plague that made you leave the capital. <laughs> No, I I'm, I'm, might be exaggerating, but really, it's an interesting point. I'm not saying that if Makar hadn't been named Han, he wouldn't have stayed and done his job. I think he probably would have. But it was a really good excuse to leave, considering he wasn't given an important job. He's like, oh, you're not going to make me Han, huh? I'm so mad. I'm leaving. Yeah. In any case, you can't blame him for getting the hell out of there. I mean, plague, right? Not only was it dangerous, though... But the problems piled up like all those dead bodies that had to be burned. And these new problems created even more dead bodies. Like this. The world of ice and fire. Corpses were piled in the ruins of the dragon pit until they stood ten feet high. 
and in the inn. Lord Raven had the pyromancers burn the corpses where they lay. A quarter of the city went up in flames along with them, but there was nothing else to be done. That quote's also kind of like a miniature summary or microcosm of Blood Raven's career. A lot of tough choices that result in destruction and blame, but there was nothing else to be done. It's tough when massive destruction is preferable, but what else can you do when the alternative is total destruction? You know, <laughs> massive destruction is awful, but it's better than total destruction, right? So in this case, a quarter of the city going up in flames is better than the entire population dead of disease, right? Yeah. Tough but fair. Now, this isn't a moral question like the one Tywin gives Tyrion after the Red Wedding when he asks, isn't it better to kill 10 men at dinner than 10,000 men on the battlefield? Well, first of all, they did kill thousands of men at dinner. And technically, Tywin, in your culture, guest right is supposed to be a huge deal. But setting all that hypocrisy aside, imagine that he wasn't lying. Let's just imagine that in a vacuum, 10 versus 10,000. It's still not a good comparison because these are human decisions. Tywin made a choice. This is a disease. This is a force of nature. There is not really a choice here. Pycelle sides with Robert in saying that murdering Daenerys is kinder than waiting for her son to invade the Seven Kingdoms, right? But Pycelle also mentions the Grey Plague at Old Town during his youth, which happened to come during uh, Makar's time. And he says the Grey Plague at Old Town was handled well by Lord Hightower because Lord Hightower wouldn't let anyone leave and he burned all the ships at anchor so the plague wouldn't spread. It was a good thing. It was a, something that had to be done, even though it was harsh and just to some people it might have been cruel, but it kept the damage to a minimum. But Lord Hightower was killed by the survivors the day he reopened the gates. Bloodraven went around with an escort before he was hanged, and it was more important now than ever, right? If you... If a lord who isn't hated has that happened to him, I mean, he became hated because of the plague, but he probably wasn't hated beforehand. Bloodraven was hated before he became hated, before he had to execute these harsh but necessary measures. Humans make the rules, right? They make the laws, but they don't set the natural laws. They don't make the rules of nature. The Red Wedding reminded us that rules can be broken. Human rules can be broken, even sacred and important ones. Nature's rules, well... I guess in Westeros they can be broken by magic. And Bloodraven did have some of that, but let's be honest. We don't know how magical he was, but it's pretty unlikely he was magical enough to stop a plague, right? That's just a bit much. <laughs> Fire is a part of nature. So he's kind of like using nature versus nature. Fire to fight disease? Yeah, I don't know. Burning things is a job for the pyromancers anyway, which he did use. But I don't think they actually used wildfire here, just to be clear. It sounds like what they were doing was picking up the bodies, hauling them off, and then burning them. But as we know, modern science, well, this isn't even modern. People figured this out a long time ago. Touching diseased bodies, even when they're dead, can get you infected. And so eventually you run out of people to haul the bodies if they're all getting infected too. So they just had to burn things where they were. And that led to additional burnings. But not only did uh, Bloodraven have this to contend with, there was a matter of a major drought which still raged even after the sickness passed. For a while, they were happening at the same time. And it probably contributed to the spread of those fires in King's Landing. Dang it. <laughs> the drought is still raging when Duncan Egg novella Sworn Sword takes place in 211-ish and winds up lasting over two years in total. So, pretty big deal. Now, whatever Makar's reasons for leaving the capital, whether it was pride or the plague or both, 
Others surely fled the sickness without making excuses. They were just like, I'm leaving. And others fled the drought as well, wherever they lived. That wasn't just King's Landing. But Bloodraven, perhaps foolishly, ordered them to stay put. Not because the idea of forcing them to stay in place was necessarily a bad idea in terms of reducing suffering. After all, the plague, you want to keep people from spreading it, so keeping them immobile helps with that. But because it's just an order that isn't going to get obeyed. People were just disobeying it left and right, and it kind of made him look weak, I think. You know, you get to be hand, you issue orders, no one follows them, kind of saps your authority. In the long run, we I think it's fair to say he handled the drought and sickness about as well as possible. Maybe. But that's the long term. In the short term, it didn't look good. And people were already willing to believe the worst about him. So some people probably thought he was making it worse on purpose for some nefarious reason. So you've got people ordered to stay in place where they had no water and were afflicted by disease. And there's the burning down of a quarter of King's Landing. So anyone who already had a negative opinion of him, how is this not more, pardon the pun, fuel for the fire, right? They probably so, and people who were kind of maybe not so sure how they felt about him, well, I bet this made a few more people hate him. They jumped on the hate blood raven bandwagon, probably because they heard so much sentiment, you know, uh, so much yelling about how bad he was, even though it wasn't fair. And then came the fallout from people not staying put despite the drought and disease. And we can see the logic behind, at least some of it, behind Bloodraven giving the order in the first place. Besides the disease part, the problem is that most of these displaced people had nowhere to go. It's not like their neighbors or their neighbors' neighbors had it much better, and many would have had it worse. The Sworn Sword showed an example of two houses fighting over a vital but small source of water. One normally enough for them both. So resources were getting scarcer. And that's the problem. The drought led to violence elsewhere, not just between House Weber and House Osgray. And not all water disputes had Duncan Egg around to arbitrate, right? Most of them would have gone worse. The violence is further increased by all the displaced people who found themselves without a home or food. You know what happens then? Banditry, out of desperation. You got to do what you got to do to survive when you have no other means. And as you would expect from what we discussed in the last episode, and so far this episode, of course people blame Bloodraven for that too, even though he told people to stay put. The ones who didn't became bandits, and that becomes his problem. So he's blamed for that, blamed for the drought, blamed for people leaving their lands, blamed for people not leaving their lands, blamed for whatever happens as a result of either leaving or staying. But the blame game always gets played, more so when times are desperate, which they certainly were, very much. So the D's were really out of control. Maybe I should have called this part desperation, displacement, disease, drought, and Dagon. Why well, stop at three D's when you can have five? Or, f you know, five D's were like the biblical four horsemen. Bloodraven took a lot of blame as if each of those four horsemen had his face. That's kind of scary. His face is a little scary. <laughs> but to be fair, he probably does bear some of the blame. Some of it. Let's talk about that. It makes sense to keep people from moving around to stop the plague from spreading. But afterwards, eh, less so. We have a real-world comp here provided to us by Stephen Atwell. By the way, Stephen Atwell, huge part of this episode, even though he's not appearing personally. He had a big uh, contribution in terms of the content here. And we're gonna, we have some scheduled live streams with him later to wrap up some of the Black uh, Fire stuff that we didn't cover, like the Nine Penny Kings. But back to this. After the real-world Black Death, a.k.a. the bubonic plague, there were a lot of labor shortages because there were just so many deaths. This, in turn, gave the peasants more mobility and bargaining power. 
one noble could outbid another noble for services of peasants. He's like, hey, peasants, I'll pay you more. Come over here. Whereas peasants before had to basically just take whatever they could get because the nobles had a surplus of labor. But we're all familiar with the idea of minimum wage and whatever your opinions on it, this is a case where they tried to impose a maximum wage so that nobles couldn't hire each other's peasants away from them throughout bidding. They also didn't allow peasants to quit or take long vacations after saving up their newly increased wages. It just, the law basically forced them to keep working, which is horrible, right? And of course, it didn't work. People got paid under the table just to get around maximum wages, just like they do to get around minimum wages, you know, paying people under the table so they don't have uh, workers on record. <laughs> so in Westeros, we can expect a lot of the same. This was, a, remember, that was all real world stuff. That was after the Black Plague. In Westeros, there would also be an enormous pressure on Bloodraven from the nobles because of this large shift in economic power. They'd be having all kinds of problems with their own labor shortages, land disputes, succession issues, etc. Due to deaths at all levels. Remember, it wasn't just killing peasants. It killed the king. It killed lords. Things like that. So you got, you probably got situations where a couple of different cousins all have a relatively equal claim to a castle and they're fighting over it. And you probably got several of these situations all around the country. So just all kinds of problems at once. So there's a lot of reason to criticize Bloodraven, but it was also basically impossible for him to come out of this looking good. It was more like, well, my best case is to just not look terrible here because you know, always blame the guy at the top. But it's also the possible the pressure on him to impose these bad ideas, this, these economic sanctions, these keeping people in place. It's possible he didn't want to do that, but he just got so much pressure from the nobles that he had no choice. I mean, let's be honest. As powerful as he was, he's not that powerful. He can't go against, you know, if 80, 90% of all the lords are asking for the same thing. I don't know if he can say no to that. But in the end, quote, and not really the end, but time helped the situation more than anyone's particular actions, I suppose. Meaning, well, eventually you can't really get rid of desperation. That's always going to be around in some form or another. But you can lessen it. And the disease died out, and so did the drought. So that lessened desperation and the displacement. So those are both positives, things moving in the right direction. There was still Dagon, though, the other D. And he was not unlike the bandits, just a whole nation of bandits, far more organized and well-led and better equipped and, you know, on sea instead of land. They're really... Uh, Different in scale, similar in, in purpose. Uh, he raged for quite a while, sacking villages, carrying off women, killing many, and staying a step ahead of all the attempts to stop him, as the Ironborn are particularly good at doing that. You wonder if Bloodraven saw it coming at all, though, right? He has his, his spy network and a thousand eyes in one, but did he know? I mean, the Iron Islands, you could think that maybe his spy network wasn't quite as strong there. I mean, I got to think he had some people that were over there. But it's hard to send messages. Like, think of what Balon did before his rebellion in A Storm of Swords, right? He kept all the ships at anchor so that no one could spread news that he was hosting his longships. However, if someone had really looked closely or really thought about it, they might have noticed that. It's like, gee, you know what? No ships are coming back from the Iron Islands these days. Bloodraven's the kind of guy that might notice that. But he might not. He might not notice it at all. So I can't imagine that this... Dagon's rebellion was a total surprise. He didn't see it coming at all. So Bloodraven was blamed for inaction on Dagon, 
But honestly, it's pretty easy to see why he worried about other matters and just let Dagon lie for the time being. Because think about this. If his position on the matter was, ah, the Starks and the Lannisters are going to handle this. That sounds pretty reasonable, right? Like, oh, the Starks and the Lannisters can handle this problem. And the Tyrells too. I mean, he was attacking all up and down the West Coast. So it was the Tyrells also. So that's three great houses that Dagon's going after. It's not weird to think Bloodraven would say, ah, they can handle that themselves, right? It just backfired because, well, they couldn't stop him by themselves. They could not stop Dagon Greyjoy. So, to be fair, there was the sickness and the drought, which weakened the kingdom and made it easier for the Ironborn to do their thing, and maybe the Iron Islands were less afflicted by it. That makes sense, too. But the weakening of the kingdom and all the blame directed at Bloodraven continued this idea that this was a weak regime. It had started auspiciously. The realm suffered with all these things that people would call omens. And then Dagon comes, exemplifying the piratical predatory tradition of capitalizing on weakness. And that sends a message. Look, he can't deal with this. So Westeros was a bit ripe from the Ironborn perspective and from others probably too, like the Blackfires. But Bloodraven himself for years sent no assistance to the West. He didn't say send any help to the Starks and the Lannisters to fight Dagon. But doesn't that say more about them than him? I think so, but the realm didn't, as far as we can tell. Now, it said Bloodraven was more concerned with Tyrosh at the time. His eye fixed on Tyrosh is the line we see. And that's where the Blackfires were. And this was just before the Golden Company was formed. You can imagine Bloodraven spies telling him, Bittersteel's amassing men! And him going, hmm, that's not good, maybe getting concerned. It may seem a bit odd, but someone who might have known a thing or two was Arian, as an Arian Brightflame. He had been in exile after his actions in the Hedge Knight, and he had gone to Lys, which is not too far from Tyrosh. You know, map shows that. The two cities trade with each other quite a bit, and it just so happens that he returned from his exile maybe within a year of all this. It's not, it's, it's, we don't have a precise timeline on it. I don't know that Arian actually brought useful information about the Golden Company or any useful information at all. But returning to the kingdom was important regardless. So like his presence is not reassuring, but it's important. We don't have any kind of idea what Arian's relationship with Bloodraven was like. So I kind of doubt he had any useful information, but I do think it's possible that he would have been a hostage, right? Bittersteel or the Golden Company could have grabbed Arian and been like, hey, we got a prince over here. Step two, I don't know, step three profit. But, you know, there's a, some, there's, you can obviously see why they might think that was a good idea. But that didn't happen. So it was an eventful few years. The drought and the disease had passed, though. Dagoning was still happening all over the West Coast. He was doing his thing. Dagoning, that's a word, right? Uh, Arian had returned from lease, like I said. The Golden Company had formed, and the second Blackfire claimant made his move. Now, that's not all necessarily in order of those things that happened. But all of this is detailed in the Mystery Night novella. Let's check that excellent story out for more. The Mystery Night. Most of what we know about Bloodraven and the eras he lived through come from the world of Ice and Fire and a few tidbits from A Song of Ice and Fire itself. But the Dunk and Egg novellas are a particular treasure because we get a first-hand look at attitudes from characters in world about these important figures. Like, what do the rank and file and the smaller nobility and a lot of different people think about Bloodraven and Damon Blackfire and all these other important characters? Rather than getting it from a single maester writing much later. 
Look at this, though. It's it's new in a sense, but it's also familiar. Starks, Lannisters, Greyjoys, right? Egg and I have a long journey before us. We're headed north to Winterfell. Lord Baron Stark is gathering swords to drive the Krakens from his shores for good. Ugh, too cold up here for me, said Sir Maynard. If you want to kill Krakens, go west. The Lannisters are building ships to strike back at the Iron Men on their home islands. That's how you put an end to Dagon Greyjoy. Fighting him on land is fruitless. He just slips back to sea. You have to beat him on water. That had the ring of truth, but the prospect of fighting Iron Man at sea was not one that Dunk relished. He'd had a taste of that on the White Lady, sailing from Dorne to Old Town, when he'd donned his armor to help the crew repel some raiders. The battle had been desperate and bloody, and once he'd almost fallen in the water, that would have been the end of him. Something tells me this Sir Maynard Plum has thought about this problem quite a lot, as we just explained, right? <laughs> and hopes it gets handled without him. He's like, I really hope this plan works, that the Lannisters and, and Stark can take care of it. Because he doesn't want to have to do anything himself. I mean, he doesn't want Bloodraven. Sorry, Sir Maynard. Having to send help to Castle Rock and Winterfell. He doesn't want to have to do that. Side note, Lord Baron, mentioned by Dunk here, died soon after this, killed by the Ironborn. So, Sir Maynard, he knows what he's talking about. George is a master of multiple meanings. You don't need me to tell you that, but this is a good example of it. The Mystery Knight, the title of this third Duncan Egg novella, perfect example of that. Several knights in this story present a mystery, depending on the perspective of the characters involved, and of course the perspective of us readers. It wouldn't have been as cool a title, but had he called it The Mystery Knights, it would have been really on point. The main examples are, of course, Sir John the Fiddler, who turns out to be Damon II Blackfire. Sir Duncan's presence at an event meant for Blackfire conspirators is a mystery to many others in attendance, like Sir Maynard, who is Bloodraven, wondering why he's there. And of course, Sir Maynard himself is a mystery knight because he's actually Bloodraven. Many a mystery knight, and there's really a few other examples in there, but we don't need to cover them all. So I don't really need to convince you of the first two there. Everyone knows Sir John was Damon Blackfire, and Dunk was kind of a mystery to many people there. But I guess a few people might not agree that Sir Maynard is Bloodraven, or maybe don't haven't seen all the evidence. So as I go forward, I'll throw some examples out. But also, I really want to take a look at Glamours, and this is something that we get in this story. We get a good example of Glamour. Someone besides, you know, Melisandre and, you know, Rattleshirt slash Menths. But his association to the old gods is actually presented before the Glamour stuff. Yes, in the Mystery Night. What am I talking about? Well, as usual, George gives awesome details and clues you can't possibly catch without a reread or a podcast. Before long, the trees opened up, and they found themselves in what must once have been a wayward grove. Only a ring of white stumps and a tangle of bone-pale roots remained to show where the trees had stood, when the children of the forest ruled in Westeros. Amongst the weirwood stumps, they found two men squatting near a cook fire, passing a skin of wine from hand to hand. Their horses were cropping at a grass beyond the grove, and they had stacked their arms and armour in neat piles. A much younger man sat apart from the other two, his back against a chestnut tree. One of the men drinking wine is Sir Maynard. So let me present what you're seeing, if it wasn't clear. We have there Lord Bloodraven making his first appearance amongst a grove of weirwood stumps. I love it. <laughs> of course, he's also 
uh, described as among the bone pale roots and drinking wine. His birthmark is described as a wine-stained birthmark, and you need some red to go with all that white, all that pale. So there you go. Now, after more drinking, the conversation eventually turns to gossip about the royal family and Aegon the Unworthy's many children. We'd all be bastard sons of old King Aegon if half these tales were true. Oh, and who's to say we're not? Sir Maynard quipped. Good one, George. Who's to say we're not? <laughs> Brendan Rivers sneakily admitting that he is one of those bastard sons. He is one <laughs> of those lost bastards. Which reminds us that there's also the matter of his sense of humor. This is a joke he's making. It's kind of in line with the jokes and sarcasm that Bloodraven makes openly when he appears at the end of the novella. Sir Maynard comes to be very sure that Sir Duncan has no idea what he's gotten himself into. He has no idea that this is a Blackfire gathering. He takes multiple opportunities to suggest that Sir Duncan should leave. In one case, he says, Dunk should go, quote, anywhere. Winterfell, Summerhall, Ashai by the Shadow, while giving no indication he himself is planning to leave, which is a little strange, unless you realize who he really is. He also seems to know exactly who Egg is, something Bloodraven would clearly know, not even because he's a spymaster, because that's his family, that's his cousin. And he would know that his cousin is wandering the hedges with some extremely tall hedge knight. And it was widely known that Egg shaved his head before he went out with Dunk. So, hmm, a random hedge knight knowing who Egg is would be a Dunk-sized surprise, but... Bloodraving recognizing his own cousin, not so much. But the best indication is visual, and it's very telling, and it's worth a look, even if you're already fully convinced. Like I said, we get to look at the glamour angle here, which is really cool. When Lord Cockshaw tries to kill Dunk, Sir Maynard was watching. And witness Dunk kill him. He offers congratulations, which of course startles him, because he didn't know he was there. Dunk whirled through the rain. All he could make out was a hooded shape and a single pale white eye. It was only when the man came forward that the shadowed face beneath the cowl took on the familiar features of Sam Maynard Plum. The pale eye no more than the moonstone brooch that pinned his cloak at the shoulder. Not just is this one eye imagery important and really damn cool. The moonstone brooch is the equivalent of Melisandre's ruby. It's like this gemstone playing a role in glamour parallel. Melisandre, a dance with dragons. Melisandre touched the ruby at her neck and spoke a word. The sound echoed queerly from the corners of the room and twisted like a worm inside their ears. The wildling heard one word, the crow another. Neither was the word that left her lips. The ruby on the wildling's wrist darkened, and the wisp of light and shadow around him writhed and faded. So there's a fun little gemstones and glamours parallel, but... There's also this, which is very peculiar and very telling if you're on the right track, which I think we are. This close, there was something queer about the cast of Sir Maynard's features. The longer Dunk looked, the less he seemed to see. Cool, isn't it, right? We're told glamours don't hold up terribly well when given heavy scrutiny, and that seems to be what's happening here, though Dunk doesn't necessarily realizing it. It might, might be subconscious. Let's, let's think about glamours for a minute in this light. Dunk is bleeding and not even remotely considering the possibility that Maynard could be in disguise as someone else. So it wouldn't necessarily be fair to say that Dunk is being scrutinous here. So how exactly is this glamour not holding up under scrutiny when there's no scrutiny? <laughs> to be fair, 
I guess that's not scrutiny. It could just be, you know, a subconscious thing, or it could be that Melisandre in the year 300 is more powerful than Bloodraven is circa 212. Could be that magic didn't work as well then, right? We're told that the Song of Ice and Fire is when magic starts to pick up in intensity and power, right? So that, that kind of fits. We get to see different versions of the same theme here, though, right? Varus goes around in disguise all the time, too, but he doesn't have pale skin, a missing eye, and a unique birthmark. Ditto Melisandre. She's concealing her age, most likely, or at least something about herself. Mel and Bloodraven need magic to hide their real features. Varus doesn't, but the similarity is still there that they're hiding who they are. Part of this is because Varus and Bloodraven, even though they're spies who rely on a spy network, they know it's best to see things firsthand with their own two... Okay, one... Well, you know what I mean. Seriously, you've got to be good at what you do to pull that off. And you got to be brave. Going into danger and disguise, you got to have big ball... Okay, so Vara... Never mind. Both of them use disguises extremely well. Disguising one's look is often not as meaningful as disguising one's intentions, though, right? And the spy game goes way beyond stealing information. It can mean planting information. It can mean stealing important objects like a dragon's egg. But so many other things like sabotage both the physical kind and that which sows discord among allies is part of the whole picture as well. Spy game is big, right? There's lots of possibilities. Let's move on. The Black Wedding After the reveal that Sir Maynard is Bloodraven, a few other things he says become hidden jokes, like this one. Venture a guess, sir. You have two eyes. Maybe he's jealous of two-eyed people. So, Bloodraven slash Sir Maynard is extremely well filled in on what's happening, who the conspirators are, who's there by accident, etc. All these different things. But how did Bloodraven find out about the tourney in the first place? Okay, that, that shouldn't be a big deal. It's, a, it's not really a secret. It was a tournament, right? There's hundreds, probably thousands of people who knew about it. We're not, we're not supposed to think that some random hedge knights knew about it and somehow the Master of Whispers didn't? That's pretty doubtful, right? The tournament didn't really rely on secrecy. It was subtle in different ways, though not subtle enough. I mean, it, it wasn't a good plan for many reasons. That's, that's something we're not trying to sell you on that. The event just raised red flags, right? Uh, well, we'll say black flags. <laughs> just by paying attention and noticing the pattern among those invited told a big story. It was suspicious. Egg figures it out himself after being there for a while. He just kind of puts it all together and is like, wait, Blackfire, Blackfire, Blackfire. Hmm. So it wasn't really that hard to figure out. But Bloodraven knew about it well in advance. He knew that there was Blackfire stuff going before it started. How do we know? Well, he arranged for the dwarf to steal the dragon egg. And Kyle the cat points out that the dwarfs were known as one of the attractions. He mentions the Comic Dwarf. He says, Comic Dwarfs will be at this tournament. It's going to be great. So people knew. This hedge knight knew. So a burning question for the Black Dragon's cause was getting others to join them. That was a big part of this. They needed to rebel and have some success so that other people would join. They needed to prove that they could get it going. The phrase their idea was to bring in through marriage, but... You can only bring in so many allies through marriage, right? You don't, you know, you can't have that many marriages to give out. Well, okay. The Fraser, a bad example of 
not having enough examples of people to marry. The phrase have so many people to marry off, but they didn't at this time. They only had a couple of, of kids to marry off. So here's how the new Blackfire leaders thought their plan would go. Oh, once we have Butterwell's gold and the swords of House Frey, Hall will follow, then the Brackens. Otho knows he cannot hope to stand. So the implication is that they needed to show some success, maybe some momentum, before others would back their cause. Most can't simply afford to just openly declare for the rebels right at the start. That's just too risky, especially knowing Bloodraven. Like, they know Bloodraven's out there, they know he's watching, they know he's capable, and they know he's harsh and unmerciful. So they gotta keep it on the down low until it looks like it might work. Take their chance if that chance comes. Um, well, there's a few counterexamples, like, say, Sir Glendon Flowers, or Glendon Ball, as he prefers, loudly going around talking about who he's descended from, this great Blackfire leader. Glendon sits there talking about how Damon was the real king, he was the deserver of the throne, all that. He very obviously wants to hook up with Blackfires. And he's eager, loyal, surprisingly good at fighting, but no one knew that at the time, but also completely incapable of being subtle or dishonest. One day I bet he winds up in Egg's Kingsguard, but that's another story. The point here, though, is that hanging out with, uh, with Glendon Ball stands a good chance of helping you sniff out other Blackfire loyalists. What do I mean by that? This is a kid who wants to fight for the Blackfires, but hasn't actually signed up to do so yet because of his age and pride over his heritage. Bloodraven seems to have figured out that he'd be a lightning rod. Associating himself with a loud Blackfire supporter in the guise of Sir Maynard is a really good way to make others think you're also for the Black Dragon. Like, why else would you walk around hanging out with a guy who's loudly talking about his Blackfire support? It says a lot. So if that was Bloodraven's plan, and I think it was, it worked perfectly. Glendon Flower is offered a job, as predicted by a noted Blackfire supporter, and shows everyone that he's good with a lance. Lord Gorman Peak offers to him a job if he loses on purpose, which is one of the reasons why this plan, this whole scheme was doomed to fail, because you got this idiot running things. Gorman Peak, this is an easy mistake. Not easy as in an easy one to make, but it's easily called a mistake. Clearly a mistake. The appeal of Damon Blackfire to many was chivalry. He was the embodiment of what it meant to be a perfect knight. He was worthy of the Iron Throne because he was the perfect knight. True or not, it was the opinion that many held, and that's why they backed him. And young, idealistic, hot-headed Sir Glendon was certainly one who held that opinion. So asking him to lose on purpose, you just can't ask that of a man who signed up because of chivalry. It just, it just doesn't make sense. Even Bloodraven probably didn't foresee how big a role Sir Glendon would end up having in taking down the Second Blackfire Rebellion. But I do think it's very likely he took into account Sir Glendon's personality and worked off of it. And he also took into account the kind of man Lord Gorman Peak was. And it's fair to say Lord Bloodraven, a better judge of character than Lord Gorman was. Bold statement, I know. <laughs> given that Bloodraven knew so much in advance, and given how quickly his army showed up when needed, you know, the next day, 
He had the dwarf prepared in advance as well. It stands to reason there may have been other measures he took as well. Other men on the inside who could give or learn important secrets. Or that he bribed men on the inside to give up secrets. Because the problem with secrets is like what Ariel Hota tells Ariane. Somebody always tells. Uh, especially when someone's being bribed. <laughs> with so many people involved, there are plenty of people who could have spilled information to Bloodraven. Plenty. We even have an example very uh, succinctly spelled out for us. One Verwell man-at-arms boasted openly about being a spy for the Hand and was promptly killed for doing that. Uh, shouldn't brag about being a turncloak against a bunch of people with swords standing around you. Another example of someone not being so smart. It would be unsurprising to learn that even Sir Kyle the Cat himself was one of Bloodraven's men. Um, unwittingly or wittingly. Right? Like, he could have been a plant, saying the right things, doing the right stuff, just helping expose things. But there's no evidence for that. It's just a suggestion. But I do have uh, a candidate that I'm fairly sold on for pulling an inside job, for playing double agent, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, or maybe a family willing to go down the road and take sides when the opportunity presented itself. And this is a family quite familiar with that. Especially setting people up at weddings. The Red Wedding, big event, but this Black Wedding, as I'm calling it, may have been quite a setup as well. It even had the wrong people playing instruments, apparently. One of Lord Frey's daughters played two hearts that beat as one on the high harp, very badly. As he does so many times in The Mystery Night, it's Sir Maynard explaining things. He knows what's up. The child had the most irritating laugh Dunk had ever heard. A high, shrill hiccup of a laugh that made him want to take the boy over a knee or throw him down a well. If he hits me with that bladder, I may do it. There's the lad who made this marriage, Sir Maynard said as the chinless urchin went screaming past. How so? The fiddler held up an empty wine cup, and a passing server filled it. Sir Maynard glanced toward the dais, where the bride was feeding cherries to her husband. His lordship will not be the first to butter that biscuit. His bride was deflowered by a scullion at the twins, they say. She would creep down to the kitchens to meet him. Alas, one night that little brother of hers crept down after her. When he saw him making the two-backed beast, he let out a shriek, and cooks and guardsmen came running, and found my lady and her potboy coupling on a slab of marble where the cooks rolled their dough, both as naked as their name day, and flowered from head to heel. The irritating chinless child, of course, is none other than the Walder Frey here. He's only about six years old, making two characters in the Mystery Night, still alive after 88 years and five Song of Ice and Fire books. Bloodraven is well known for his harsh punishments, right? Something that will backfire on him later. But it also sets the bar. So whenever he's lenient, it looks suspicious. Nearby, Lord Frey was seated in a camp chair with a cup of wine to hand and his hideous little heir squirming in his lap. Lord Butterwell was there as well, on his knees, pale-faced and shaking. So both families are caught in the act, Butterwell and Frey, but one is groveling on his knees while the other is sitting drinking wine with his son in his lap. That's a little strange. He's then told he'd be dealt with later and dismissed. Hmm. It really feels like the Frey's set up the Blackfires here, or at least went down the road expecting to do one or the other, to either go along with the rebellion if it went well or to spill the beans if it didn't. They wanted an out. 
they arrange the marriage on this pretense of alliance with that story about the daughter sleeping with the pot boy is a great part of the cover story, which may or may not have actually happened. It probably did, but it works great as a story either way. Meanwhile, Bloodraven is told all this, if this theory is correct anyway. And you can see how it's similar to Welder's Red Wedding so much later. He may have even gotten the idea from his father hearing, hey, a wedding is a great place to set something up. <laughs> Setting up the groom and his family with a marriage alliance while actually working with the Hand of the King to lure a rebel faction into a trap? Eh, eh, pretty good parallel. A strong implication here, though, too, is that uh, this was something that he figured out later, right? Um, he wouldn't have understood it at six years old, but his father could have told him, Hey, son, this is how we do things. This is a good way to handle power. Hmm. So if you've really been paying attention, you know what all this means, right? The Red Wedding was Bloodraven's fault. <laughs> no, not really. Let's consider Bloodraven's plan to steal the egg. That's another cool part of this. If he knows he's going to surround the castle and capture everyone, which he did, he knew about everything ahead of time, why steal the egg? Why not just capture everybody, then just collect the egg afterwards? Okay, well, that might have worked. But stealing the egg has another benefit to it. It sows division among the conspirators. They think they're gathering allies to launch a rebellion, and then the egg goes missing. And all of a sudden, all the conspirators don't know who did it, and that sows distrust among all of them. How are they supposed to trust this group of people that came to support their rebellion, and one of them is clearly working against them, and they don't know who? Which of them is it? Who did that? That's exactly why the conspirators pinned the whole thing on Sir Glendon. Because if it's just some random hedge knight who stole the egg, then all the conspirators can just relax and make, oh, it wasn't one of the noble houses working against us. It really drops their level of paranoia down. It's just some random kid and not, you know, part of some big conspiracy. So that's a lot easier to swallow. Were it not for the fact that Bloodraven had informants among the conspirators, Damon the Younger could have launched a troubling rebellion from within the heart of the Riverlands. But even before the tourney had concluded... The hand turned up outside White Walls with a host of his own, and the second Blackfire Rebellion ended before it could truly be said to have begun. So I think figuring out that this tourney was a Blackfire plot wasn't anything special for a master of whispers, but I do think it's fair to say Bloodraven's handling of it, the way he took it all down, was masterful. Especially with the sudden appearance of Egg, whose presence could have turned the whole thing into a hostage standoff if the Blackfires learned who he was. Most men in charge, I'm meaning most men in Brendan's position, would have simply surrounded the castle, faced a siege, or a fight, as Damon II called for. He was like, let's charge through them and run for King's Landing. Either way, the hand, whether Bloodraven or someone else, would have come out ahead. It's just, it was just too easy. But I think most situations here would have called for a fight. I think Bloodraven, the way he did it, made it so that no one even fought. There wasn't even a battle. And that's very much to his credit. He broke their morale on the inside. They might have died for the Black Dragon's son. They really might have. But this kid failed, fell in the mud, and got called Brown Dragon instead. So instead of a fight and a loss of men in a heroic last stand, it just looked like a giant failure to anyone involved and to anyone who heard about it later, which is really important, which is pretty much everyone. Everyone's going to hear about this rumor. And no matter how the rumor is spin to anyone... It's got to sound bad for the Blackfires. This is just, there's no way to make this look good. And quite a few showed up for the Red Dragon, as you can see here. From Maidenpool had come Lord Mooton. From Raventree, Lord Blackwood. From Duskendale, Lord Darklin. 
The royal demences about King's Landing sent forth Hayfords, Rossbys, Stokeworths, Masseys, and the King's own sworn swords, led by three knights of the King's Guard, and stiffened by three hundred ravens' teeth with tall white weirwood bows. If you look at a map, or if you're looking at this one here, you can see that these are fairly close by houses, but not exactly next door either. White Walls was somewhere on or near the eastern shore of the God's Eye, though closer to Maidenpool than King's Landing. And we know Bloodraven cared about the symbolism of the Black Dragon, right? The symbolism behind a hero's death. He very much wanted to avoid that, and that's why it was so important to have the Second Rebellion defeated with as little blood as possible. Letting Damon live maybe isn't square with the idea of him being a hardliner, but he points out that it's not his decision. It's King Aerys's. Though we know the king takes his lead from Brendan, still, he has to go through that process. Should I be so foolish as to remove his pretty head? His mother will mourn, his friends will curse me for a kinslayer, and Bittersteel will crown his brother Hagon. Dead, young Damon is a hero. Alive, he is an obstacle in my half-brother's path. He can hardly make a third Blackfire king whilst the second remains so inconveniently alive. Bloodraven doesn't stop there, though. He decides to dismantle White Walls entirely, descriptively detailing how it's going to be taken apart. It's a really nice castle, and it didn't exist for very long. Maybe you can say there's not much luck building castles on the God's Eye? Bloodraven explains his decision, saying, All fools and young malcontents still make pilgrimages to the red grass field to plant flowers on the spot where Damon Blackfire fell. I will not suffer White Walls to become another monument to the Black Dragon. It strikes me as a bit over the top, to be honest. It's kind of like Reigns of Castamere. It's like, this is what happens to rebels. It's, you know, takes the whole thing down, destroys them root and branch. But leaving flowers on a, on a spot a dead hero fell, well, that's one thing. But Bloodraven made sure the second Blackfire Rebellion was a debacle, right? Damon Blackfire's death was worthy of songs and stories. He, he, he lost, but his play for the throne was glorious. His death was the stuff of legend. Damon II lost, but his attempt was an embarrassment. It wasn't the stuff of song unless we're talking about like satire songs. And he didn't die. He was captured without a fight. It just feels like a waste of a castle. It doesn't seem like anyone was going to make pilgrimage just to that spot. Uh, so I think Bloodraven's a little over the top. Maybe a lot over the top. And I think that's really cool. Because George R. R. Martin manages to show us a lot about Bloodraven's character during this short story. Including his psychology. Including how he maybe goes too far. He's on screen a lot because of Sir Maynard, <laughs> and as usual, there's quite a lot to be gleaned by looking deep and reading between the lines. There's always a lot going on there, as we know. Heck, you have to read between the lines even to know that's Bloodraven. But, but we do see his spy methods. We see him using sorcery. We see how people fear and loathe him, and we see him be heavy-handed in the case of White Walls. And we know why, because of his history. We know that he is a hardliner. We know he goes over the top when it comes to the Blackfires. So executing the ringleaders and repeat offenders. Yes, that makes sense. That's in line with normal Westerosi ethics. Perhaps he should have sent some to the wall, but meh, whatever, that's a small thing. Taking hostages from the rest, he says, will suffice to keep them in line. But who are the rest? 
Most of the houses President Whitewalls fought for Damon I, so them showing up to fight for his son makes sense. They're continuing with that same line of loyalty. But there were some who showed up for the Second Rebellion, like House Smallwood, who switched to the Black Dragon after first fighting for the Red. This is particularly noteworthy. We see houses switch to the winning side all the time because they want to be on the winning side. But you rarely see someone switch to the previously beaten underdog, right? We're told that a part of this is hatred of the regime. Bloodraven pushed some people far enough that they took up with the losers, you know, putting it in a kind of harsh terms, but that's kind of what it looks like. From their perspective, they might have thought they had a good chance. The next several years, despite Bloodraven winning essentially all the battles, he continued to alienate many in the realm, a bit like Rob Stark, winning the fights, but maybe not coming out ahead in politics. But the difference here, well, there's a lot of differences here, but one important one is that Rob was loved and didn't really rule. He never had an administration. He was in the field until he died. So he never had a kingdom to manage because his kingdom was never fully forged. And it wasn't just the prejudice with regards to Brynden's bastardy and his looks and his mark as a kinslayer and his interest in sorcery, though clearly none of that helped. He was just not good at making or keeping friends. A lot more rule through fear than respect or love. This is where he is like Tywin quite a bit. He's also like Tywin in that he was seen as the real man in charge despite a king, in both cases named Ares, as it turns out, wearing the crown. At the start of the series, Robert Baratheon half jokes about how he's surrounded by lions. His in-laws are everywhere. Of course, he's even more surrounded by them than he thinks because his own kids are full lion, not half lion. Sansa says the same thing to Marjorie too. And, and Sansa's more hostage than in-law. So whoever these new Blackfire loyalist hostages that were taken after the failure of the Second Rebellion and sent to the Red Keep, they'd be a, quite a lot like Sansa, especially the girls, especially because they'd be married off or they'd be un, not unlikely to be married off to loyal families, right? Your family fought for the Black Dragon. You're a daughter of that house. You become a hostage and you get married to a dragon of loyalty or a family that followed the Red Dragon in any case. So they'd have felt a lot like Sansa, surrounded by enemies and forced into, in, forced to marry a family that's against their own. So, yeah. But it wasn't a pride alliance in this case. It was a conspiracy of ravens. No, really. That's the real term for a group of ravens. Either an unkindness of ravens or a conspiracy of ravens fits right in with a murder of crows. Or, no really, a watch of nightingales. Night's watch aren't crows, they're nightingales, clearly. But I guess Alfin Nightingale Killer doesn't have the same ring to it. Ravens in the Red Keep The Sworn Sword Make no mistake, tis Lord Rivers who rules us with his spells and spies. There is no one to oppose him. Prince Makar sulks at Harrenhal, nursing his grievances against his royal brother. Prince Rhaegal is as meek as he is mad, and his children are, well, children. Friends and favorites of Lord Rivers fill every office. The lords of the small council lick his hand, 
and this new Grand Maester is as steeped in sorcery as he is. The Red Keep is garrisoned by raven's teeth, and no man sees the king without his leave. This is the excellently named Septon Sefton. In the book, it's said unfortunately named, but I think it's excellent. And Septon Sefton is probably exaggerating a bit here, but most of what he's saying we can see corroborated elsewhere. Just maybe taken down a notch. It looked like Bloodraven had taken over, and he basically had. But it doesn't look like ambition. It doesn't look like pushing the king out of the way. It looks like common sense. This isn't another parallel to Tywin, who ran things but wasn't really calling the shots. Tywin and Aerys II went back and forth on a number of things. Aerys II undermined his hand. Aerys I, though, this is a king who just didn't care about ruling, not one who was pushed out of the way or manipulated into submission or threatened. Aerys II had pride. He wanted to be seen as the man in charge, but Tywin was just so good that it undermined that. Aerys I? Not so much. The way it sounds to us, Aerys just preferred Bloodraven to do it all. Pride didn't matter to him at all. He just wanted it done. Leave me alone. <laughs> just imagine Robert jokingly, but not jokingly, saying he, he just wanted to drink and screw until he died and wanted Ned to rule while he did all that. This is the same. But instead of wine and girls, it's books of prophecies. Aerys I comes off as a bit weak, but I'm not so sure. I think it's more like Robert. Robert wasn't a pushover when he cared about something. It's just that he didn't care about hardly anything, right? And even Ned wasn't able to make him care. Even his best friend couldn't get him to care about things that Ned and most humans would think are important. So I think that's what we're, we have with Ares the First. It's easy from the outside for us readers or for Westeros to see something sinister. Like, oh, we never see the king. Oh, Bloodraven makes all the decisions. Oh, Bloodraven took over. But he wasn't calling the shots because he wanted to rule through a puppet king. He called the shots because it was his job. <laughs> Part of the reason I say this is because Makar, Makar, who supposedly sulked at Summerhall, who didn't really like Bloodraven all that much, kept Bloodraven his hand. Is it credible that a proud warrior king like Makar would allow Bloodraven to be hand if said hand had usurped his brother's authority? I think Makar knew his brother better than that. I think Makar knew Ares cared nothing for anything besides books and scrolls and figured, well, this is just how it turned out because my brother only cares about books. I think Makar knew that it was just that simple. It didn't bother him. How bad could it be, you know? Some might say, well... What if Bloodraven was so entrenched and threatening that Makar was afraid to remove him for fear of reprisal, like maybe he'd assassinate his kids or something? Well, there was no reprisal when newly made King Aegon the Unlikely imprisoned Bloodraven much later, and Egg was no Makar. He wasn't a powerful warrior king. Besides, Makar just doesn't strike me as someone that could be threatened like that. We've long compared him to Stannis, and imagine how Stannis would deal with being threatened like that. I don't think it would work. I think Stannis would stand up to it, and I think Makar would too. So I don't think Bloodraven stole any power. He was given a lot, and he used it. But he didn't try to take more, and he didn't seem to enrich himself or empower himself any more than to do his job. But he was harsh. Of all the reasons people hated him, a lot of those reasons were kind of unfair, but some of the complaints, especially these ones, had merit. The Sworn Sword Uncle Baylor said that clemency was best when dealing with an honourable foe. If a defeated man believes he will be pardoned, he may lay down his sword and bend the knee. Elsewise, he will fight on to the death and slay more loyal men and innocents. 
But Lord Blood Raven said, When you pardon rebels, you only plant the seeds of the next rebellion. Uncle Baylor is Braylor Breakspear. And it's interesting to compare what major figures think of this situation. Quote, how to deal with defeated enemies is obviously a recurring question throughout the history of Westeros and the real world. Here we have a case where Tywin agrees with Uncle Baylor, while Bloodraven agrees with... Joffrey, when your enemies defy you, you must serve them steel and fire. When they go to their knees, however, you must help them back to their feet. Elsewise, no man will ever bend the knee to you. Tyrion Six, A Storm of Swords. Tywin and Baylor Breakspear have the right of it if you ask me. Bloodraven isn't perfect, and that's really important because a lot of people ascribe him figuring out everything, and everything that happens in his life goes according to his plan. I think this is proof that he's imperfect and goes too far. Well, not proof, but evidence. And this comparison isn't just a gotcha moment, haha, Bloodraven is like Joffrey, but it's to show that his behavior is hinting at something else. He's hated Bittersteel since he was a kid. And Bittersteel came to be the biggest part of the Blackfires. The hate he learned as a child never seemed to have gone away. In fact, it probably grew over time, even. Joffrey's unreasonable. He's petulant. Bloodraven isn't, but maybe he is when it comes to the Blackfires. I mean, when you're harsher than Tywin Lannister, you know, the Reigns of Castamere guy, the break-their-knees-with-hammers-so-their-begging-will-be-a-lesson-to-others guy, when you're harsher than him, you might be too harsh. Anyway, I just think it's awesome that... Deep within all this backstory, all this nuance exists. We can find this psychological stuff. We can find the underpinnings for Bloodraven acting like the way he is. We don't need it. We It would be perfectly fine if George was like, hey, this was a hardliner guy. Okay, those exist in real life all the time. We wouldn't need that to explain to us. We wouldn't need to be like, gosh, why is this guy a hardliner? We would just accept that at face value. But he does give us that. He does give us the reason behind it all. And that's great. He goes the extra mile, and it works, and it fleshes out the characters even more, and that's awesome, because that's what he does, because he's the best. The quote we started with this section illustrates it all well. We're getting history and information from Sir Eustace, yes, but we're also getting his hate for Bloodraven. It's palpable. It's a passage rich with information and characterization. Sir Eustace points out that Raven's teeth are all over the Red Keep, but that's not strange. It's presented as strange, but it's not. It's not unusual to see house guards and sworn swords around to augment manpower. The King's Guard's never enough, it's only seven guys. Ned brought his men to the Red Keep when he was hand, so did the Lannisters. Tyrion brought wildlings! So I have a feeling that the Red Keep having lots of the Hand's private army around is not really as big a deal as Sir Eustace is making it out to be. Especially when you have a king that doesn't care. Ares' attitude towards the raven's teeth all over the Red Keep was probably along the lines of... Meh. Ares II was paranoid. He would not have liked that. He, he only let the Kingsguard have swords around him. He wouldn't even let someone with a razor come near him. But Ares I was not. He was not mad. They share a name, but not a lot else. I think it's more that it looked bad. Ares I might have cared that it looked bad. But... He probably didn't care that much, even though it looked bad. And the ones who hated Bloodraven, and there were a lot of them, it would look particularly bad to them. And it's fair to say the optics on the Hand's personal army being all over everything official isn't great, even though it's a little normal. Especially because of what we said before, given how quickly it probably happened. You got probably got one day, you got 
the Red Keep being what it is, the next day you got Raven's teeth moving in, like lots of them, and Blood Raven himself, and it just just all of a sudden that would be a little awkward to the normal residents of the Red Keep. He'd be moving into the Hands Tower immediately. His guards would be there. Yeah, it would be a pretty big difference. And think about how important that is. This is, a, this is an important parallel. Tyrion, likewise, shows up during a time of crisis with wildlings at his back and delivers the news that no one in the small council saw coming. Hey, everyone, these crazy-eyed killers. I, in the case of Timot, son of Timot, but hey, he's extra crazy to make up for it. Well, these guys, these crazy-eyed dudes, they're going to come live here in the Red Keep, and they take orders from me. Oh, and by the way, I'm hand now, so I outrank you. That's intimidating. And it's really similar to what's happening here. The Raven's Teeth would be intimidating for different reasons than these Vale clans, but they would be intimidating. So think about how important that is in terms of the combination of events and how similar that is parallel-wise, but think about how it actually plays out in the Red Keep. Tyrion was going to be denied entrance to the small council when he first got there. Sir Mandon only backed down after Tyrion threatened him. He said, Bronn and Timot, see them? They're going to kill you if you don't let me in. Having that muscle at his back had a literal impact on politics. It wasn't just who he was. It wasn't that his dad gave him, you know, the command that gave him a letter that said, you're acting hand. He had to force his way into the small council first. So it's quite a powerful thing walking around the Red Keep with muscle at your back at all times. But again, the downside is the optics. It looks bad. It looks like you're pushing everyone around. It looks like you're intimidating people to get what you want. Instead of being there because they need the protection, right? We know that there were Blackfire spies. We know that there were uh, the potential for assassinations. We know that there were people sending secrets to Bittersteel. So yeah, it looked bad, but it was kind of necessary. And as far as reputation goes here, you can argue that further damage to their reputation was totally worth it. Because how could his reputation get worse? Tyrion would say, well, people hate me anyway. What is bringing some wildlings to the capital going to do? They're not going to just hate me more? They can't hate me more. And Bloodraven might have felt similarly. Like, they're not going to like me no matter what I do. I may as well not try. So I may as well just weather the storm and do the right thing and just keep going. That's what it's kind of like to uh, be Blood Raven's enemy. You know, you got spies, you got the resources of the Iron Throne, you're worried about his, him having sorcery, you're worried about his ruthlessness, how dedicated he is. That's what you're up against when you make an enemy of Brendan Rivers. And because it's not just his personal guard intimidating people, it's that spy network that was clearly quite extensive. Cersei's paranoid about Tyrion's capabilities. Imagine how worried she'd be if... Tyrion were also Varys <laughs> combined, you know? Like, you should be really paranoid. But, you know, you don't have to be paranoid to dislike that idea. You know, it's normal to be like, uh, sitting here going, I don't like the idea of everyone listening to everything I says. That's not paranoia. That's just, hey, I, nobody likes that. And especially because they could take something you say out of context. They could lie about what you said. It, it doesn't give you this feeling of security. It gives you the feeling that you could just be swept up and arrested or accused of something at any minute. So think of all of that when you think of what a force at court Bloodraven was. Think of how dominating he was, how intimidating he was, and why people would want to do something about that or why they would just fall in line because they were so intimidated. I mean, we could name a hundred places, houses, locations, Etc. And a large number of them would have his spies. And there'd be hundreds more left on the... I should have said a thousand. A thousand eyes, right? But anyway, 
As powerful as that makes him, it's yet another wedge between him and any semblance of love or even respect. The more powerful he gets, the more hated he gets. You know, it's not that simple, but it's, you know, the basic idea is there. Tywin wasn't loved either. He was feared and respected. Varys, not loved either. Nor is he actually particularly respected, but he is feared. Bloodraven's level of power is more like Tywin's, and he was probably more feared than either. But in terms of respect, he'd be more like Varys. They wouldn't respect him, but they would fear him. I mean, they'd respect him in the sense that they know how powerful he is and how capable he is, but they would still look down on him for his status, his looks, etc. For doing dishonorable things like spying. And of course, the sorcery, again, doesn't help. Never helps. <laughs> it wouldn't be accurate to say Bloodraven ruled by cruelty. He didn't use terror tactics or go after innocence or prey on the weak, even though it would be accurate to say the realm was afraid of him. So it's the difference between ruling by fear and people being afraid of him, right? It's a fine line there. Now, he may not seem so now, being a tree and all, but at this point in the timeline, he's fully human and constantly working. Running the realm while being hated is probably emotionally exhausting, letting, let alone the threats he has to deal with on a regular basis. But he was also born into this life, never knew much else. This is what he's been doing since he was a kid. Still, not knowing who to trust is hard enough when half the realm is prejudiced against you anyway. He'd have to learn to tell the difference between people's general disdain from him from afar, and those who had more personal reasons. He would have to very carefully vet anyone who took into his service. Uh, I talked about that a bit with the Raven's Teeth last time, but it'd be even more important now because he was in an even higher position of power. Even more at stake. And there's Blackfire sympathizers all around, if not outright Blackfire spies. So he's got to be really, really careful he's not just empowering the enemy by taking one into his service. Now, like Tywin or Viserys I, who are other extremely long-tenured hands who worked under ineffective or problematic kings, you just doesn't seem like you'd have much time for a life or a family, right? You're just running the realm. It's a, several full-time jobs at once. A thousand hands in one you'd need. However, Tywin and Viserys did have wives and kids, but Bloodraven didn't. Not necessarily for lack of trying, right? He did propose marriage to Shiera Seastar, apparently more than once, we believe she was still in the picture in the early days of Bloodraven's tenure as Hand. Probably much longer. Certainly, possibly much longer. Egg mentions her during the Sworn Sword in the present tense. Along with a mention of her bathing in blood to prevent aging. Like, huh? Whoa, huh? If she did this, meaning bathe in blood, which is a little dubious, but it's certainly possible. Well, we know she apparently studied the arcane with Bloodraven, so... It would be interesting to hear his thoughts on humans battling aging with magic, especially now at age 125-ish. She may have, by herself, represented most or all of Bloodraven's personal life. He's like, I got a job, I got all on my hand, and I just got this one girl that I chase after, and that, that's my private life. That's it. But she's also playing a role in his professional life, too. You know, because we, we hear that she helped him with the spying, using magic to help with spying. That's a rumor, so we don't know that's a, a fact, but it seems like it's uh, likely enough. To bring back the Ares I Robert Baratheon parallel, I can picture Bloodraven having way too much to do, but Ares is like, hey, I know you got a lot to do, or maybe not even saying that, just saying Ares being like, hey, you're my hand, I'm the king, get in here. Check out this scroll, what do you think? <laughs> Instead of uh, Robert demanding Ned drink with him, you know, just uh, Ares, demand he look at scrolls with him you know <laughs> had ned and robert coexisted his hand and king for longer we might have seen more scenes like that 
Except it wouldn't have had anything to do with libraries, and it definitely wouldn't have been just one glass of wine with Robert Baratheon involved. In this quote here, read by Camille Stoner, Bloodraven is about 37 years old, and Dunk had last seen him when he was around 29-ish. And maybe what you're seeing here is the stress of office. The Mystery Knight. He was older than Dunk remembered him, with a lined, hard face. But his skin was still as pale as bone, and his cheek and neck still bore the same ugly wine-stained birthmark that some people thought looked like a raven. His boots were black, his tunic scarlet. Over it he wore a cloak the colour of smoke, fastened with a brooch in the shape of an iron hand. But more interestingly than the possibility that he's stressed out is this iron hand instead of a golden one or some other metal. And that matters. Symbolism between the metals is really important. Ned's hand to the kingpin given to him by Robert was silver. Tywin and Tyrion had that famous gaudy gold necklace hand uh, full of hands. Brendan kept it simpler. That moonstone brooch he wore as a fake hedge knight is arguably fancier than just a little iron hand. But this is some serious symbolism. It's not just the quality of the, of the metal and the expensiveness of it. Iron is black, and iron breaks before it bends, as we're told in reference to Stannis by the blacksmith Donald Noy when he's talking about Robert's the true steel, Stannis is iron, Renly was copper. In general, but especially when it comes to the black dragon, definitely not known for his mercy either. Makar's a better parallel for Stannis, but Bloodraven definitely dips his foot in the be-like-Stannis pool quite a bit. Stannis also was, and still is, willing to employ some pretty dark magic for what he'd consider the greater good. Stannis is pretty much an ends-justify-the-means kind of guy, and it seems like Bloodraven is too. So, for a guy who supposedly had a lot of magic in his toolbox, one can't help but think of Melisandre and her shadow baby comparisons. And there's no escaping, as always, the red and white coloring that Bloodraven and Melisandre share. Over the years, one would think that this would continue to seal his reputation as a hardliner. All this, you know, being the way he was for so long, in the limelight, doing all these things. And the list of enemies he had would probably grow. And a lot of those would probably maybe consider joining the other side. And the longer he was a raven perched on the shoulder of the king, people are going to wonder. Especially as the Targaryen family just kept on shrinking. And the court itself got deeper into the arcane. The prince that was premised. Ares and Makar dominate the narrative of Bloodraven, being the two kings during his tenure as hand, but the rest of the royal family played an important role as well. Prince Aegon, Egg, of course, is a big standout, but there's also Prince Aemon, that's Maester Aemon, Arian Brightflame, Daron the Drunkard, Princesses Rey and Daella, but beyond them, the most important at the time would be Ares's heirs. That's hard to say. And Ares's heirs were his brother Rhaegel, then his brother's kids, Aelor, Aelora, and Daenora. Prince Makar eventually succeeded Ares. So that means all these people in between had to die. Plus, even though Ares showed no interest in sleeping with his wife, well, there had to be a chance he would have a kid on his own. He didn't, but they didn't know that at the time. So it really didn't appear that Makar would ever be king. In fact, that's a big part of why Egg was called Egg on the Unlikely, because he's a fourth son of a fourth son. Makar is the fourth son that he's the fourth son of. Yeah, there you go. The third son, again, is this Prince Rhaegel and those kids of his, Aelor, Aelora, and Denora. Again. 
And they probably lived at Dragonstone, the traditional seat for the heir, while Makar definitely lived at Summerhall. It's possible Rhaegal lived at the Red Keep. We do hear that he was mad, meek, and sickly. He's the one that ran around naked through the halls of the Red Keep, which is why we think he may have been at the Red Keep and not Dragonstone. Given that he was mad, it's good that he was meek, right? Ares II was mad, but far from meek. <laughs> we saw what that meant. Bloodraven would have had a lot harder time managing such a man like, well, like Tywin did. And that Tywin had a lot of troubles with that. For about six years, this mad, meek, and sickly Prince Rhaegal was heir to the throne, and many may have feared Bloodraven ruling the realm through him, which he was already doing through Ares, but many might have thought that would have been worse. Still, it's doubtful many would want him to be king, even Bloodraven himself. Why would anyone want a mad king? Really, there's only a few people who would want that. Well, the Blackfires might, because if there's a weak king on the throne, that might be a good excuse for them to invade and say, hey, look, look at us, we're a better alternative. So if we're getting extra conspiratorial, that is where that works. Like, Bittersteel could arrange to have Ares murdered, and then all of a sudden you got Regal as king, and then that, there's your plot. <laughs> but the King's Guard is no joke. It's no easy thing to kill a king. You can maybe, you know, we've seen examples of the extended family of a king being killed or kidnapped, but the king himself is a hard target. And the king's guard in this era was probably blood raven tested and approved, which means a lot of scrutiny on the family, their history, any possible Blackfire loyalties, major background checks, in other words, for sure. And we hear nothing as far as attempts on Ares' life, so he either did a good job protecting him Maybe it was easy. Dude spends all day in the library. Just block off access to the library. You're good. <laughs> but Ares's heir just kept on changing. And if we're continuing to wonder about princes getting murdered, can't help but notice the method of Rhaegal's death himself. Choking to death on a lamprey pie at a feast. That just sends up alarm bells, doesn't it? I mean, we all know pie, feast, purple wedding. Yeah, you can't not think of that, right? And one of the things about it is, one of the things about Joffrey... Dying in front of a lot of people, choking, makes it a lot harder to spin it as assassination. Because so many people saw the dude choke. It really looked like he choked on food. You got a lot of witnesses. Also, with so many people around, you got plenty of suspects. It's real hard to pin it on one person when there's like hundreds of people in attendance. So it's a really good time to kill someone. If it had been pigeon pie that Rhaegal had joked to death on, then <laughs> it would have been really obvious. We'd be like, come on, George, that's a little too uh, straightforward there. But still, he did it in a way that makes me suspicious, and I imagine a lot of you are suspicious now, too. So if you think Bloodraven might do the deed himself, well, it would at least take away the incentive to kill Ares. <laughs> it would ensure a mad king didn't sit the throne, right? Meaning, if Bloodraven kills Rhaegal on his own, then Bittersteel won't have any reason to kill Ares. Because if Bittersteel wants Rhaegal on the throne, well, if Rhaegal's dead, then that can't happen. So, Rhaegal dies around the year 215, so that makes his son Aelor heir to Ares instead. And he was heir for about two years, Prince of Dragonstone. Now this is one of the weirder Targaryen deaths that somehow simultaneously sounds very suspicious, but almost too suspicious to be part of some murder plot. We're told he was slain in a grotesque mishap by the hand of his own twin sister and wife, Elora, under circumstances that left her mad with grief. What? 
Well, if we're trying to pin this on Bloodraven, which I'm not, but if we want to explore the possibility, sorcery? Making him do, making her do something she wouldn't normally do, and, you know, like a weird form of skin changing? I don't know, it just... Probably not, but I'll put it on the table anyway. Not to be outdone by her twin brother, Elora also died under really odd circumstances. Quote, sadly, Elora eventually took her own life after being attacked at a masked ball by three men known to history as the Rat, the Hawk, and the Pig. It says she took her own life, but who the heck are the Rat, the Hawk, and the Pig? Must be a reference to their masks. This was a masked ball, right? But mysterious, no matter any way you spell it. There's not much detail here. They reappear, though, some three decades later in a rebellion during Egg's reign. But the World of Ice and Fire doesn't unmask them, despite their defeat. It's hard to guess that they might be Blackfire supporters because the rebellion so many years later has no apparent connection to the Blackfires either. But we can't rule it out. It may have been connected somehow. In addition to the ever-shifting succession, there was another royal-blooded figure at court. One whom Bloodraven had captured a while back. Right, Damon II. Don't forget about him. About whom we're told, as for Damon, he lived on for several more years, a hostage in the Red Keep. Turns out Damon II's dreams were about a lot of things that weren't him, but he kept seeing himself in the middle of it all anyway. He just got his dreams wrong. We've seen that happen plenty of times. Still, even though he interpreted his dreams poorly, there's no doubt that he had legitimate magical abilities. And did he continue to have these dreams while he was a royal prisoner? Probably, right? Why wouldn't he? And he wasn't alone. Daron the Drunkard also had dragon dreams, and even though he probably lived at Summerhall with his father, how interesting that there were two dragon dreamers alive at this time, relatively close together. Having these dragon dreamers around might have been of great interest to King Ares, Bloodraven, and the new Grand Maester who, quote, This new Grand Maester is as steeped in sorcery as he is. Well, that's interesting. You've got a whole court where so many of the highest of the high are interested in the arcane. They got these two dragon dreamers on hand. That's a lot of stuff. And you got Shiera Seastar, too. The two dreamers seem to be impacted so very differently. This is why it may have drawn their interest, other than the fact that, hey, magic, that's really interesting. Dragon dreams, what's up with that? Daron suffered and was tortured by his dreams. He took to alcohol to drive it away. But Damon was exhilarating by his dreams. He thought that it was portending great success for him, promising power and, you know, winning. Well, two extremes on the opposite ends, but both were misinterpreting a lot of what they saw in their dreams. And a similar end point for both of them. The dreams ruined them both. What did Bloodraven and Ares of the Rest make of that disparity, though? They would be sitting there going, well, this dreamer, it's messing him up. This dreamer... It led him to ruin, but he thought it was good. And you really wonder what kind of dreams Damon II was having now that he was disabused of the notion that, you know, on his way to destiny. Maybe he still had <laughs> the idea that he was going to be broken out of jail and take the throne some other way. Maybe he still had optimism. Who knows? If we go back to Aegon the Unworthy, we have a court of sycophants and those playing and paying for favors, a pay-for-play administration, if there ever was one. Daron II had a court of maesters, singers, and Dornish. Ares I was all about magic. This is a really cool court. It's probably my favorite of all the different courts. So it's no wonder what this group accomplished. And what I mean by that is, make no mistake, the discoveries, rather the rediscoveries and overall work done by this court is 
probably, almost certainly I'll say, what led to Rhaegar's arc. So maybe that's not something for them to be proud of, because Rhaegar, you know, kind of did some stupid stuff. Um, but it's super interesting. <laughs> this is the group, to be clear, who rediscovered the prince that was promised prophecy. The Mystery Knight. Someday the dragons will return. My brother Darren's dreamed of it, and King Ares read it in a prophecy. Maybe it will be my egg that hatches. That will be splendid. Would it? Dunk had his doubts. Well, I need to think of all this high-level interest in the arcane. I, I pointed out how cool this court is, not to mention the actual magic itself happening, but this is during a time when the dragons had died out. Supposedly magic was waning. Well, clearly it wasn't all gone, but that might even be a point behind this surge in interest. They're like trying to get back what was lost. I just think it's fascinating that the kind of the height of the low magic period is when we have the court most interested in the arcane. But it always follows. The targets were always trying to do something. Maybe not the really early targets we know less about, but Visenya maybe was doing stuff ma magically. But we do have, throughout the No Dragon here uh, period, have the Targaryens consistently trying to bring the dragons back. But they, we don't hear that they're doing any other kind of magic besides that. Anyway, though Bloodraven's reputation for sorcery grew over time... He probably had more time for studying the arcane before having all these responsibilities. Like, who has time for studying magic when you got to manage drought, desperation, displacement, Dagon, disease, all that stuff. <laughs> it's funny, just as an aside, maybe Ares didn't actually want Bloodraven around as a study. Maybe he's like, that guy is an annoying study partner. <laughs> Damon II, again, to go back to Dragon Dreams for just a minute, as discussed in the last episode, we don't see any evidence that Bloodraven had Dragon Dreams. But Green Dreams... Yeah, he certainly did have them, but we don't know when they started. But they probably started before he was in his 30s, right? Probably? So even if he hadn't fully explored or mastered his abilities, he had to know he had unnatural talents well before this. He probably had been comfortable with it, knowing it for, for many years by this point. He studied the arcane, might have seen writings on green dreamers, and realized what was described in those pages matched his own experiences. And this is really cool to me because he's like, it comes off as kind of a rational, practical guy. Not like a guy interested in magic to gain power, but because it's useful and because he's interested in it, because it's, it's a curiosity. And in the case of seeing what Damon saw, seeing the future in metaphor and being wrong, well, like Archmaester Marwin explained, you can't really trust prophecy. You can't take it literally. So it would be a lot for someone like Bloodraven to dive into and explore and kind of figure out, like, what are the common ways people get prophecies wrong? What are the common ways people get their dreams wrong, their prophetic dreams? A lot of stuff like that. Someone who has seen both the Valyrian prophecies, if not ones older still, wielding glamours and other sorceries while also looking deep into the depths of the Weirwood network and slipping into the skin of animals. That is really cool. That's just so much to take in. He's just so magical. All this magic has consequences though, right? And I don't mean the high cost of magic or death must pay for life, things like that. Life must pay for death, either way. I mean in terms of reputation. It's because it sounds so cool to us, but again, it's very offensive to most of, maybe much of Westeros. Again, Westeros rose for a chivalrous king. They love Daemon Blackfire. This is the same Westeros that perceive 
Brendan as a threat who see magic as an abomination and him as an abomination. And because of that, his policies were unjust. They thought it was all unfair. Stephen Atwell compares it to being in a police state. And I, I get that comparison. Loyalty constantly being scrutinized. Everyone feels like they're being watched. It fits. He was basically in charge and there wasn't much anyone could do about it. But they could try. Blackfire Rebellion. Take three. If you recall, the second rebellion was partly fueled by the death of so many hostages to the spring sickness. It was impossible or unwise to invade with so many important families having hostages that would just be executed if a rebellion occurred. But the spring sickness killed a lot of those hostages. So they weren't held in check any longer. But Bloodraven points out he's going to take new hostages at the end of the second rebellion. And he, he points out that some might fare worse because they had already rebelled once and the second rebellion you get less forgiveness for. But still, for whatever reason, whatever confluence of factors, 219 was the year that Bittersteel decided it was go time. The conditions were better then than in 212, clearly. that The rebellion in 212 was a huge failure. And in part, it's not hard to see why other than that. Bittersteel had the Golden Company now. Huge difference. He had just started it around the time Damon II was trying to make his dreams come true. Bloodraven's reputation and heavy-handedness had alienated more and more families over time, and the Targaryen family had shrunk quite a bit since not only the Second Rebellion, but the First as well. Meanwhile, the Blackfire family was... well, we don't know. But it looks to have been growing. We don't hear of them dying off, we hear of pretty much the same family being about the same. But there's one condition for this rebellion that's hard to understand, and that's these hostages that I brought up at the beginning of this section. It took 14 years and a plague to clear out the hostages so that the Second Rebellion could begin. This time, between the Second and the Third, there's only seven years and no plague. Blackfire 3 is launched and has a lot of support. So what does that say about those hostages? Well, part of this is that there are fewer houses in total involved in the Second Rebellion, so there would be fewer hostages to take. But still, seven years is very little because hostages tend to be young. So you're not thinking, oh, they got old and died. Probably not. So we have to strongly consider that the Third Rebellion was a case where Hagon Blackfire, the new Blackfire king, and Bittersteel just said, screw it. If they kill a few hostages, it doesn't matter. It's still worth it. And this is backed up by Damon II's relatively young age at death. We don't know when he died, but it would have to be before 219. So this would fit our theory that the hostages were all executed. I mean, they could have executed Damon II himself. This is a bit of a stretch. I don't have a lot of confidence in this theory, but I do think it's strong enough possibility that it bears mentioning. What I mean is that Bittershill could just be that ruthless, saying, yeah, they're going to kill the hostages when we invade because that's what they'll do. But so what? The, it's kind of the opposite of what's happened at Marine. Danny and Barristan refused to kill the hostages, even though they would be totally justified. Think of the other famous Brendan, Blackfish, and the not-so-threatening threat to hang Edmure Tully. <laughs> Blackfish knew it was an empty threat. Note that when Black Walder threatened Lord Jason Malister with the hanging of Patrick Malister, well, Jason Malister gave in, because Black Walder's threats are real. Black Walder is that kind of man, and by the same token, Bloodraven is that kind of man. Blackfish knew Ryman Frey wouldn't do it. Lord Jason Malister knew Black Walder would. 
Bittersteel knew his brother knew he would do it. Is there an advantage here though? Or was it just a, oh well, we'll take the hit on our reputation for those hostages, but it's, you know, if we get the throne in the process, it'll be worth it. He could have also gambled that because Bloodraven was so hated, that those families would hate Bloodraven for doing it. Even though they know the deal with hostages, they know how it all works. They might still, just because they hate him so much, they might blame him. It's, it's common that people blame the person that gives the order and not the person that kind of indirectly triggers it. Uh, like I said, it's uh, not, a, not my favorite theory, but I think it's pretty good. And I think it's worth pointing out. So let's move on, though. More likely is that those hostages weren't that important. And they just said, oh, well. Uh, I'm not willing to believe there were just no hostages left, though. That seems too much of a stretch. I have a little more evidence for this, which comes from the war. Let's talk about Makar, who had been skulking for so long, apparently. And he's a man of pride. This is when he gets to come storming back into the limelight. A key leader in the war. As a commander in the First Rebellion, he was outstanding. Hammer and the anvil, right? But he was the anvil, not the hammer. Not the sexy, heroic one. He was the, the stolid, you know, successful guy, but his brother Baylor got all the press. Uh, his, in this case... No one else's leadership is mentioned. Other people's contributions get mentioned, like they did good things in the war. But the only one whose leadership is mentioned is Makar himself. So that's pretty good for him, good for his pride, and good for his pride that his son Egg is mentioned as performing some brave deeds during the war as well. Quite a lot for Makar to be proud of, and as a proud man, well, that's good. Still, despite mention of his performance during the war, we don't hear his name pop up during the events that followed after the fighting was done. He didn't seem to, at least as far as we hear, have any part of this decision-making process afterwards. And here's where I wonder a little more about the death of Damon II. The world of ice and fire. The pretender, Hagon I, Blackfire, died in the aftermath of battle, slain treacherously after he had given up his sword. But Sir Aegle River's bitter steel was taken alive and returned to the Red Keep in chains. Many still insist that if he had been put to the sword then and there, as Prince Arian and Blood Raven urged, it might have met an early end to the Blackfire ambitions. But that was not to be. Though Bittersteel was tried and found guilty of high treason, King Aris spared his life, instead commanding that he be sent to the wall to live out his days as a man of the Night's Watch. That proved a foolish mercy, for the Blackfires still had many friends at court, some of them only too willing to play the informer. Prince Arian and Bloodraven argue for the killing of Bittersteel then and there, it says. We'd also bet heavily it was one of them who killed Hagon himself. I think Arian more likely than Bloodraven, but entirely possibly Bloodraven. I think that Ares wanted Bittersteel left alive because of the kinslaying angle. And Hagon's slaying was very dishonorable, as well as Kinslay. So you can see why he wouldn't like that. It's, it's bad for the Iron Throne to get that reputation. And it is, by the way, as an aside, it shows that Ares is capable of stepping in when he wants to. He, he exercises authority uh, despite important people arguing against him. So he was not moved. So again, this shows that he wasn't weak, just that he didn't care most of the time. But this fits in really well with the idea that the hostages were sacrificed. Because think about it this way. If Damon II was alive when Blackfire 3 started and they executed him because he was a hostage and that's what they do, 
then they're going to look at the evidence and say, well, why would capturing Hagon stop the next Blackfire from invading if capturing Damon didn't stop Hagon from invading? They would say, well, our hostage policy didn't actually work last time, so <laughs> what's the point? Let's just kill the guy. Why keep him in prison? It's also safe to say Bloodraven continued to keep a close eye on the Blackfires even after all that. The Third Rebellion would prove to be their last real shot. They didn't get terribly close ever again, but that's hindsight. We, we didn't know that at the time. Bloodraven wouldn't have known that that was their last great chance. And given the notion that he was so careful, he wouldn't have taken anything for granted, I don't think. And it probably did annoy the hell out of him that Bittersteel hadn't been executed. Not just because it kept the threat of the Blackfires very much alive, but because it made him look bad. Agor escaped, thanks in part to informers at court. Not just the whole scenario of this guy escaping, just looks bad any way you slice it, but because it proved that the informers at court got around Bloodraven's network. So it probably got pinned on him by more than a few. Bittersteel is noted for his skills as a warrior and leader, but for him to have so successfully infiltrated the Red Keep says a lot. One of the things it says is that the realm may have been too hard on Brynden. Bloodraven is said to have focused too much on Bittersteel. He had his eye fixed on Tyrosh. But if Bittersteel was really this capable, if he had spies that were breaking him free on the way to the wall, then it kind of suggests that Bloodraven really was up against a lot, and it maybe does excuse him for letting Dagon Greyjoy run wild for a time. It at least changes the perspective, doesn't it? And maybe it doesn't move your opinion all the way, but I think it changes it. One of the ways he would know this, by the way, apart, and this is apart from more obvious things like his long experience, is by using the same methods Bittersteel used on him. Just as the Blackfires had spies and sympathizers and opportunists willing to play both sides by selling secrets, so must Bloodraven have had a few of his thousand eyes within the Golden Company itself. 10,000 soldiers, many from Westeros, wanting to come home. Surely he could have found a couple of bribes in there. How easy would that be? I think pretty easy. Some of them, no. No way. They just hated him too much. Or they just decided this was, this was their cause. Loyalty is important to them. They're not so easily moved. But out of 10,000 dudes, especially if he offers what they want, he's like, you know, play double agent for me and you can have your old castle back. That's exactly what they wanted. They, they were invading to get back their lost lands. Well, Bloodraven just offers him that. But what does he care if it's a Blackfire king that gets him what he wants? Surely some of those 10,000 were willing to do that. They were willing to sacrifice their loyalty to get what they came for, which is their lands back. Anyway, not hard to see that being possible. This is worth consideration from both a before and after perspective. Before the Golden Company came to Westeros for the first time, it might have been harder to bribe them. But once they had lost, once they were like, oh, they beat us, it might be even easier to find people willing to sell secrets because now that's more clear that their side is overmatched. They may have had that, oh, or we can't be beaten. We got the new Golden Company. We're tough. We're badass. We could win. But then they didn't. And some of them might second guess what they're doing. And here comes an opportunity to switch sides and get what they were aiming for all along. Fertile ground here, folks. And again, like Ariahota says, someone always tells, right? 
Well, he wouldn't need an informer to tell him that Bittersteel had crowned Hagon's son as Damon III. That news would have spread very fast by itself. So would the news of whoever else was executed or forced to give up hostages after the failed Third Rebellion. Given how close the conflict was, it was likely Hagon had a lot of support and thus, well, that's a lot of houses to punish. That's a lot of hostages. That's just a lot. Egg distinguished himself during the Third Blackfire Rebellion and the year after, in 220, he married Bloodraven's cousin, Betha Blackwood. This was a marriage for love, so Bloodraven probably had no involvement, despite the Blackwood family connection. She's Daenerys' great-grandmother, and her nickname was Black Betha. If that name sounds familiar, it's because that was also the name of Davos's ship. Black Betha, the person, probably died at Summerhall, probably to wildfire. Black Betha, the ship, definitely burned at the Battle of the Blackwater, definitely to wildfire. End of an heiress. The Sworn Sword. His grace cares more for old scrolls and dusty prophecies than for lords and laws. He will not even bestir himself to sire an heir. Queen Eleanor prays daily at the Great Sept, beseeching the Mother Above to bless her with a child. Yet she remains a maid. Ares keeps his own apartments, and it is said he would sooner take a book to bed than any woman. Hmm? Two years after the Third Blackfire Rebellion, Ares I died. He was likely in his late forties, which is not terribly old, but not young either. Should we be suspicious? It's hard to see who would want him killed. That's the problem. And we, especially because we don't hear any suspicion of such either. So that makes it even harder to see why this could be the case. And here, let me lay it out for you. Mary's death meant the ascension of Makar, because of all the heirs in between had died. So, well, first of all, why would Bloodraven want that? We, before we hear that Bloodraven and Makar had some difficulties together, right? Eventually they learned to apparently get along and work together, but at the time... We don't know that that's the case. So what's Bloodraven's angle here? I just don't see it. There doesn't seem to be any benefit from it. He, he seemed to like Ares. You know, they, you know, seem to have common interests. So I see no angle there. But uh, what about, and the Blackfires? I don't see the angle there either. Why would the Blackfires want the stronger warrior king guy in charge instead of the weak bookish type? The guy like the reader from House Harlaw. That's what Ares the First was like. It seems like that's the guy they would rather have in charge if you're trying to take over, if you're trying to come in as a conqueror. You want the the weaker, non-caring king rather than the prideful warrior king. The standard people are used to hearing is the king dreams, the hand builds, or the king eats, and the hand... Well, you know the rest. Robert dreamt of huge tourneys and got them, despite John Aaron and Ned's counsel against spending so much. He ate a lot and took equally large squats, right? So he really he really did prove the difficulty of that metaphor. Yeah, the king dreams, the hand builds. The, the hand, king eats, the hand takes his squats. Well, what about when the king eats a lot and sits on the, the squatter like Wyman Manderley? Well, Ares I dreamt of books and ate sparingly. He looked rail thin in his depictions and descriptions. The type of person who would be so into his books that he forgot to eat. <laughs> Robert slept around and his wife had kids with, well, you know all that story. I don't need to go into that. And it ended in a succession crisis. 
Aries didn't sleep with anyone, and his wife never got pregnant, and bastards or no. And having titles while not having kids can often also cause problems. Too many heirs can be a problem, but too few can be as well. But there was no succession crisis whatsoever when Ares I died. And I'd say that Ares wasn't really a problematic king, but he wasn't really that helpful either. He was just, he was just kind of in the middle. He was just not really a positive or a negative. He was just a king. Still really cool and because of all the magic stuff, though. But another major parallel and connection here is, again, Rhaegar himself. Don't forget that Rhaegar also started off as bookish. Until one day, Prince Rhaegar found something in his scrolls that changed him, and then decided to be a warrior. He was living at the Red Keep at the time, which we know because Willem Derry was master at arms for the Red Keep, and Derry is the one who he first went to, saying, it seems I must be a warrior. So the real legacy here is something we touched on before. It's not his reign. It's not the politics. It's not even Bloodraven. It's what leads us to Rhaegar. Again, as I mentioned before, Rhaegar started off bookish. And then, quote, Until one day, Prince Rhaegar found something in his scrolls that changed him. And then he decided to be a warrior. He was living at the Red Keep at the time, which we know because Willem Derry was master of arms for the Red Keep, and Derry is the one he went to and said, it seems I must be a warrior. So again, I'm really, really near certain that this is the same discovery remade by Ares I. Of course, the discovery was made thousands of years ago, but it took some modern folk to rediscover it. Also, this is probably the same thing dreamed of by Darren the Drunkard and, and maybe other people, like uh, maybe even uh, Damon the Second dreamed of it. And this is the prince that was promised prophecy. Dragons woken from stone. The red star bleeding. All that stuff. So that's huge. That's why um, we got to keep talking about it. Rhaegar seemed to change dramatically overnight, but Ares, not so sure. He maybe had already made the discovery before he was king. Not really sure on the timeline of when he discovered the prophecies or when he discovered this stuff. It seems that he just kept on digging and reading more, though. He, maybe it motivated him to look further, to pursue this particular angle even more. Uh, either way, it's really cool. I think this is awesome. And we're going to have more to say about this. Because this part doesn't cut off here, even though Ares is dead. His legacy of arcane studies and lore continues because... Bloodraven's going to eventually go to the wall and he's going to share his time on the wall with Maester Aemon. Maester Aemon would have some very interesting conversations with him, you would think, about fire and blood amidst the ice and snow of the north. They're going to go north during a terrible cold winter. So the parallels and the weather symbolism are huge here. And think about how Maester Aemon corresponded with Rhaegar. So much, a lot. Like, they sent letters back and forth a lot. And so what we're left with is that Rhaegar was influenced by Maester Aemon and the same books that Ares found. And Bloodraven would have had a lot of conversations with Aemon. So what Aemon was saying to Rhaegar probably had a lot of Bloodraven in it. A lot of what Bloodraven had learned. It wasn't just Aemon. It would have, he, he could have gotten this stuff from his conversations with Bloodraven which, of course, also reaches us to Shiera and Ares I and all these other people, the Grand Maester of that time who was steeped in sorcery. So th this all comes from that. Everything that led to Rhaegar, everything that led to all that stuff. So that's just huge. 
So we'll have more on that in the next episode because we're not to the wall yet. We're not to Blood Raven yet at, uh, at the Night's Watch. We're, all, we're still at his time as Hand of the King, and we're about to handle the reign of Makar. Uh, but, but because it's so important and fun, we're going to be popping back to this Rhaegar stuff again and again and again. But now we got to move on from Aerys I and take a quick break. This spot gets called the mid-roll quite often, but a lot of times we don't really have it in the middle at all. Eh, what are you going to do? Since we're talking about the Dunkin' Egg story so much here in the Blackfire series, I want to go ahead and re-recommend Audible.com. As always, you can get two free downloads if you start a trial with Audible.com through History of Westeros. Those downloads you get to keep even if you don't keep the subscription. That means you may end up paying nothing if you decide not to go with it. I recommend, at least for one of those books, getting A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, which contains all three stories from the Duncan Egg series so far, and it's read by Harry Lloyd, who was Viserys in the show. He was fantastic in that role, and he's fantastic as a reader, as you might guess. Thanks to our Blood Rider patron Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian steel arak with a dragonbone hilt. And thanks to our Ironborn captain patrons... Kathleen the Ruthless, Captain of the Night Terror, motto, Don't Fall Asleep. Black Matto Stormrider, Captain of the Rusted Hinge. Rebea, Lady of Waves, Captain of the Iron Shadowcat. Tusk Shield, Breaker Captain of Kraken's Fury. Oisan the Wanderer, Captain of Naga's Living Flame. Sir Selvas Redblade of White Harbor, Captain of Trident of the North. Lord Chucklaws, Captain of the Droman Nightblood, Destroyer of Evil. Heron Burntbeard is Captain of Smoking Narwhal. John Gregor is captain of the Fist of the Drowned God. Carice Farwin, called Seal Speaker, is Oracle of Lonely Light, the Eyes in the Waves. And Sir Kiron of Lonely Light is Scourge of the Sunset Sea, captain of Naga's Breath, a Droman armed with siphons of wildfire. Aileen is Archer Queen, captain of the Border Collie. Crimson Kate is captain of the Drowned Queen's Vengeance. Jasana the Just, collector of tolls, is captain of the Golden Gift. And Lord Mitch of House Bailey is Captain of Widow's Blood. His heir is Lordling Mason of House Bailey. If you want to get into some of the best books ever written in Western civilization, check out OnlineGreatBooks.com, enter the code WES, and take a look at the possibilities there. You can sign up and become part of a group that encourages each other and works on a regular schedule and reads through authors like Homer and Kierkegaard and Plato, etc. Some of the most famous names from all time. Taking on books like that is a serious project, so it really helps do it with some other people who are just as serious as you are. Again, that's online great books slash W-E-S. That's online great books using the promo code W-E-S. The King of Skulls. Magar's reign is shadowy. Not because he was a shadowy figure, but because there's a lot of less to go on. It didn't have a Blackfire Rebellion, there was no plague or drought or invasion by the Ironborn, that we know of. But interesting things were happening elsewhere in the realm, such as Raymond Redbeard invading in the north, and Tywin Lannister's grandmother Rohan Weber disappearing. But there's a lot of open space, and we're pretty sure it's because this is prime Dunkin' Egg territory, and he doesn't want to write himself into a corner. He wants to develop this reign more during Dunkin' Egg's novellas, so... He doesn't want to set too much out there, else he'll be stuck with what he's decided. He wants to put more thought into it. Still, less to go on doesn't mean nothing to go on. There's a lot to talk about here. And we'll start with the decision to keep Bloodraven on his hand. Ares probably liked Bloodraven. Makar, however, said to not get along with him. 
They may have even disliked each other, but as we'll see, that didn't seem to lead to any mistrust, and we hear nothing of major strife between them on a professional level. So, you know, you don't have to love someone to trust them, and it was family ties that brought them together. Uh, or at least it could have been, or at least it may have helped. But we've also seen countless occasions of nobles given jobs they are entirely unqualified for. Nepotism is rampant in Westeros. And this isn't exactly an era where having Targaryen blood made you more trustworthy. But Bloodraven's reputation against the Blackfires did. I mean, that's one thing Makar could count on. Bloodraven had very much proved himself in that regard. But in general, families are kind of funny that way, right? In, in real life, to be sure, but in Westeros, even more so. In Westeros, family ties often mean everything, and everything can mean either end of the spectrum or both. It can mean your greatest ally or your bitterest enemy or both. That's what the great bastards were for the Targaryens. Daemon Blackfire and Bittersteel were two of the greatest threats the Iron Throne ever faced, but Bloodraven was one of the greatest defenders it ever had. In part three, we're going to see how he's still playing defense, but for all of humanity instead of the Iron Throne. At this time, however, one thing everyone could agree on, one thing even his biggest detractors would not doubt, is again Bloodraven hating the Blackfires. Makar could be sure of it, but so could everyone else, especially Bloodraven's enemies themselves. And that's important. Makar's enemies were Bloodraven's enemies. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Hmm. So whatever Makar may have fought before, back in 212, 209, well, Bloodraven had had time to prove himself. So that may have been a big part of it. Another thing they have in common, something kind of unusual, a little awkward, they're both seen as kinslayers. I wonder if that wasn't a small point of bonding for them. Bloodraven was seen as a kinslayer for Damon Blackfire. Makar killed the beloved Baylor Breakspear. Both of them popular chivalrous warrior figures, both related. So yeah, it was an accident from Makar's point, but many don't see it that way. They thought he did it on purpose. Hard, not hard to see why. You don't know the guy personally, and it's not uncommon to hear, you know, one brother or sister killing someone in the line of succession in front of them. That kind of thing is normal. And you know how the commoners love to gossip and exaggerate? Check this out. The Mystery Knight. Bloodraven is the root of all our woes, the white worm gnawing at the heart of the realm. Dunk frowned, remembering the hunchback Septon at Stony Sept. Words like that can cost a man his head. Some might say you're talking treason. How can the truth be treason? asked Kyle the Cat. In King Garen's day, a man did not have to fear to speak his mind, but now he made a rude noise. Bloodraven put King Ares on the Iron Throne, but for how long? Ares is weak, and when he dies, it will be bloody war between Lord Rivers and Prince Makar for the crown. The hand against the heir. You've forgotten Prince Rhaegal, my friend, Sir Maynard objected in a mild tone. He comes next in line to Ares, not Makar, and his children after him. Rhaegal is feeble-minded. Why... I bear him no ill will, but the man is as good as dead, and those twins of his as well, though whether they will die of Makar's mace or blood raven spells. Kyle the Cat here just thinks it's obvious that Bloodraven and Makar are just going to kinslay their way to the top and then fight each other. I mean, and of course that's, that couldn't be further from the truth, but he, he just drops that like it's nothing, like it's, like it's the most obvious thing ever. And he was certainly wrong about them fighting each other. There's no direct evidence Rhaegal or his kids were murdered, but we did, you know, cast a little shade there and showed why maybe that was the case. But they did die. Anyway, you slice it, and that could look bad from the outside. Let's just say Kyle the Cat wasn't likely to have been alone in his suspicions that Rhaegal and Aelor and Aelora were killed because Bloodraven wanted them to die. 
And this would have only made them feel right, this kind of thing. Like, look, see, we told you, we hated Blood River, we, we didn't trust him, and look at all these heirs dying. They would have just proven it. This would be like a reign of kinslayers. It would seem like they got this proof that each of these guys, the king and the hand, have killed their own kin, and then we have all these heirs dying in between to make Agar, uh, to make, make our king. So, eh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's, uh, I don't, I think a lot of people would have really looked down on this regime because of that. Uh, can, it's, we cannot overstate how important the notion of kinslaying is in Westeros. But Makar is said to have deeply mourned his brother's death and marked its anniversary each year. Contrast to Bloodraven telling Bran that he had loved one of his brothers, and that was probably Damon. This is an unusual thing to have in common, right? For Makar and Bloodraven killing a brother they loved. Easy for us to miss a connection like that. But those two would not have. They would have realized and recognized that unusual commonality in each other. Unlearn what you have learned. There's a running theme in the Duncan Egg novellas, and it reflects a real-life thing. Quite a few times, Egg says something to the effect of, My father said, my father told me, blah blah, only to find out that what his father told him conflicted with something he's directly experienced. For example, Egg early on has a disdain for bastards. The Sworn Sword The old High Septon told my father that king's laws are one thing and the laws of the gods another. True-born children are made in a marriage bed and blessed by the father and the mother. But bastards are born of lust and weakness, he said. King Aegon decreed that his bastards were not bastards, but he could not change their nature. The High Septon said all bastards are born to betrayal. Damon Blackfire, Bittersteel, even Bloodraven. Lord Rivers was more cunning than the other two, he said, but in the end he would prove himself a traitor too. The High Septon counseled my father never to put any trust in him, nor in any other bastards, great or small. Born to betrayal, Dunk thought, born of lust and weakness, never to be trusted, great or small. Egg, he said, didn't you ever think that I might be a bastard? A brief exchange later, and Egg goes silent. He, he hated bastards, but loved Dunk and couldn't square the two. Eventually he came around, of course, he's not a bad kid, he just had to work through it in his mind. Though we've painted Makar as a lot like Stannis, Again, maybe Makar came around after years of seeing Bloodraven in action, of, of proof, you know, of, of making the case by his actions. And Dunk himself is a bastard, and Egg would say good things about Dunk to his father. Say, hey, look, this hedge knight is brave. He did a lot of great things. He's worthy. These are the kind of things that could maybe help change Makar's mind. And in this quote, he says, the old High Septon which may imply one who has since passed, or one who was simply old, but if that's the case, then either way, he may have been dead by the time Makar was king. Clearly, for Makar to have kept Bloodraven on his hand, he had to have gotten over what the High Septon imparted to him. One way or another, he had to at least learn to tolerate his opinions on Bloodraven, because clearly he accepted him. The High Septon who speaks out about bastards is nothing new. It's part of their religion, after all, they... And it's just... That's their belief system. It's unfortunate, but it is what it is. 
And they often commonly speak out against magic. The, the seven are not cool with magic. So it's kind of likely that the High Septon brought that up too when he's complaining about Bloodraven, saying, oh, don't trust him, he's a bastard. But also don't trust him because of his sorcery. However, that argument may not have held much weight with Makar. Our best comparison for Makar, again, is Stannis. So Stannis is fine with Melisandre doing her thing for the most part. He knows she's got power and he outright says, Melisandre has real power, I'm making use of her for that. He doesn't necessarily agree with Relorism, but he totally agrees that Melisandre is useful. He sees that. It's a little more pragmatic. So I'm kind of thinking Nacar along the same lines. Maybe that's taking the comparison too far, but we hear in the World of Ice and Fire that Arian Brightflame, Nacar's son, was said to dabble in the Black Arts. Plus we got Egg's attitude, which is uh, he had his prejudice against bastards from his father, but he speaks of dragons returning in Ares' prophecies with interest and awe. And he mentions Shiera bathing in blood and his own sister trying to give him a love potion. He obviously didn't want to drink the love potion, but he didn't seem freaked out by it or by the blood bathing. Or we don't hear of his father passing on his hatred of bastards like he passed it on his hatred of sorcery. So apparently there is no hatred of sorcery if, if this parallel is, is correct, if this uh, read is correct. So, but anyway, you look at it, there's a lot of Makar's family involved with magic one way or the other. To say nothing of Ares before him, his brother. He may have still had the same Grand Maester. He, you know, you don't normally fire the Grand Maester. So Ares' sorcery-interested Grand Maester? Probably still around. So it sounds like Makar was cool with all this. Maybe he wasn't into it himself, but he didn't seem bothered by it. Uh, and of course, heir to the throne, Prince Daron the Drunkard, Dragon Dreamer, and denizen of Dragonstone had none other than Maester Aemon, his own younger brother, as his maester. So back before we were talking about Dragon Dreams, Aemon maybe recorded some of his brother's dreams for study. You know, maybe there's a lot of stuff written about it that, that Aemon recorded. That would be really cool. An interesting, possibly contradictory situation with regards to magic arises later when Mad Danelle Lawston, Lady of Harrenhal, who looks a lot like Ashea here, hmm, is said to have turned to the Black Arts. Also like Ashea. Ashea turned to the Black Arts, but we're cool with that. The Lostons lost Harrenhal because of this. House Went, who served as household knights of the Lostons, were soon the replacements at the top. They became lords of Harrenhal. Hmm, this has Bloodraven written all over it. I'm, I'm not saying for sure, but think about what this says. You got a knightly house sworn to Harrenhal, and they're said to be instrumental in taking down the house they serve? Someone on the inside flipping? Someone important? See where I'm going with that? Because I don't think Makar and Bloodraven would care about her using magic, given all we've just said. It's said that she lost Harrenhal when she turned to the Black Arts. But this is a court full of the Black Arts. Why would this matter? Well, two sides of the story. One, it didn't, and there was some other thing going on. So maybe people were tolerant of the magic, but we later hear about kidnapping children and doing awful things to them. Maybe that's what the awful thing was. Maybe that's what they had to take, take down. They had to stop her from kidnapping kids and doing awful things to them. But honestly, as awful as that sounds, I'm not sure it's going to cause a family to lose their seat. This is Westeros. Lords and ladies get away with doing awful things to the commoners all the time, and I'm just... A sad fact is that I don't know that this is enough for someone to depose them. 
You know, I don't know that this is something that armies would march for. I hate to say it, but I feel confident in that read. And the stories about Danell were really over the top. Maybe she did kind of cross the line. Maybe it was just too much. And we'll cover her family and her a bit more in a Hal Philoston episode someday. I've been wanting to do that for a while. But the stories of her being really over the top, they remind me of the stories of Blood Raven himself. They're just so over the top. They're, they're, they, they sound like gossip. You know, they just, they make her story seem kind of normal comparatively. But anyway, consider the proximity of Hall to King's Landing and the fact that during the mystery night, the conspirators expected Danelle Lawson to side with them. Remember, they were like, once we get going, Hall will join and the Brackens will join. They specifically mentioned Harrenhal, and we know that's her because she shows up <laughs> to support the Red at the end. Her army shows up to surround White Walls. So maybe they were just wrong, and she would never have supported them. But maybe she showed up just to make a show of it, to say, hey, look, I support the Red. How can there be any doubt? But really, she was totally willing to take either side, depending on how things go. And don't forget her own forebear, Manfred Lothston had famously betrayed Damon Blackfire on the eve of the Redgrass Field. Apparently he switched sides. Maybe he wasn't on the eve of the Redgrass Field, but it was an important time. Uh, Sir Eustace says it was really important, that, that flipping. So we've already got one example of Hall playing both sides and deciding at the last minute. So maybe that's the same thing here. Maybe it wasn't the Black Arts that were the problem. Maybe it was the Black Dragon. Always comes back to the Blackfires, doesn't it? That's a problem Maycar could 100% trust Bloodraven on. If... Bloodraven says, hey, Harrenhal's getting all black fiery. We got to take them down. Well, this would be maybe a way to do it. Pin something else on them. You can't, maybe they didn't have proof that there was black fire support. I don't know. It's interesting. I think this is kind of cool. There's, there's definitely room for conspiracy theories here. And uh, something is off with her falling because of the black arts when this was a court that seemed very cool with the black arts in general. But let's move on. Strong king, weak succession. A king is supposed to create stability, and appointing the right hand is an important way to help accomplish that. But Valar Margulis, kings die too, and their death impacts the entire realm. Thus, a king is supposed to make sure things will be smooth upon their death, something that can strike at any moment, right? Second in command, as protector of the realm, it's the hand's job to be involved in all that, to push the king to settle such matters. And during Bloodraven's time as hand, there weren't a lot of kings, but the situation with the heirs changed a lot under Ares, as we saw. And under Makar, it was awkward. The World of Ice and Fire tells us, quote, the chief issue of Makar's reign was the question of his heirs. So that would make it a chief issue for the hand as well, and really had been since before Makar was crowned, as we saw with the constant dying of heirs. But it became more urgent at this time. Obviously, marriage is a key issue with regard to a king's heirs, right? That's where a lot of alliances come from. Alliance building and succession are intertwined. As we all know, the best way to seal an alliance is with a marriage. That is why they're called marriage alliances, after all, right? Now, a king is very most often backed by the queen's family, Though, of course, that's often redundant with House Targaryen and their incest. But not always, because sometimes there's factions within a family. In this case, that's very true. Although, it's a cadet branch in this case. It's not truly the family. The Blackfires are a different family, even though they're all cousins. And Makar's family, uh, Queen's family, didn't back him as far as we know. But she had died a long time ago. That was the Danes. 
we don't hear them really mentioned at all during the Blackfire Rebellion, so they're kind of a mystery in this point. Magar's father, Daron, and his predecessor, Baylor the Blessed, had pushed to end this Targaryen incest stuff. And Magar's eventual successor, his son, Aegon V, the unlikely also pushed to end this, though he failed. But it's noteworthy that Magar didn't remarry. And that totally touches on all this succession stuff. He didn't take a wife simply to bolster his power base, perhaps because he didn't need it, but also because he didn't want to create new problems. He maybe felt very stable in his reign, and maybe that's why he didn't feel the need to remarry, but the downsides are also pretty huge. Having kids with a second wife when you're the king is a path to that factionalism that I mentioned a minute ago. That's exactly what happened with the Dance of the Dragons. Viserys I had kids with two different wives, and those two half-families were the Blacks and the Greens. And Bloodraven will be aware of that, and so would Makar. This is not, you know, lost to the haze of history. These guys would be aware of that. The realm, in particular, would be particularly sensitive to who has a claim. This is something that is on everyone's minds. With the Blackfire Rebellion so recent, so fresh, still a threat, Bloodraven would need to be mindful of the politics, not just within the realm, but, but outside of it. Thanks again to the Blackfires for that. Back during the Spring Sickness, we learned that it took King Daron II, his hand, grandson, Valar, and his brother, Mataris. But Valar's wife, Kiera of Tyrosh, lived. Now, probably due to Tyroshi political reasons related to the Blackfires, because the Blackfires had made Tyrosh their home base, they kept Kiera around remarried her into Targaryen family to Daron the Drunkard. But we can't assume she was married off right away. Especially because Daron and her didn't have a kid until 221, which is the same year Makar took the throne. Best guess that with the deaths of Rhaegal, then Aelor and Aelora, Daron looked like he'd sit the Iron Throne, whereas before their deaths, it didn't. It looked like Rhaegal or Aelora or their descendants would be the line that ruled. So there would be no point in marrying Kiera into that line when they're not the main line. But then Daron all of a sudden does become the main line. All of a sudden marrying Kiera into the family in that way makes sense again because they want to keep her at the top. But Daron and Kiera only had the one child and it was a she and it was a simple-minded kid not fit for politics, let alone sit the Iron Throne. So that created another big dilemma because... Eventually, Daron died, which put Arian Brightflame directly in the line of succession. And even before Daron died, Arian Brightflame would have been heir to Daron. But there was one other character dangling out there. We mentioned Rhaegal's kids earlier, Aelor and Aelora died, but the other one didn't, Daenora. But with her, and Vaela, if we're being fair, is the question of women inheriting the Iron Throne. That question was supposedly settled after the Dance of the Dragons, that no, they're not supposed to. But some people may not have agreed that that question was settled. But it definitely wouldn't exist. The question of, of claims would not exist for a child of Daenora. If Daenora had a, a male child, there would be no question. So, there, so this is the problem. Daenora, anyone Daenora has kids with, that could create new claims. So, tough spot for Bloodraven and Makar. Nothing good about Arian being two deaths away from the throne and nothing good about creating a second line of Targaryens, which could create a whole new set of rebellions. So it's kind of a rock and a hard place. For a long time, it looks like they just waited, hoping that maybe Daron would have another kid besides Vaela with Kaera. 
But that didn't happen. He died of pox, which he got from a sex worker. So either he kept dallying after marriage or maybe Kiera had already died. Our best guess is he died somewhere around 230 to 232. And that's very near around the time it appears that Arian finally got married around the age of 40 to Daenora. They solved the one problem by combining the two branches. But it creates the other problem of Arian is now just locked in to being the eventual king. And no one's going to feel good about that. Arian and Nora would have a child, too, whom they named Magor. Well, Arian probably named Magor. I doubt Denora had any say of that. So this proves that Arian was as much a troll as he was a dragon. And is evidenced by the fact that Bloodraven would later call a great council rather than allowing Arian's son to inherit? I kind of think he was against this marriage in the first place. My headcanon is that Bloodraven argued against any marriage for Arian because of who he was, but Makar pushed the marriage once Arian became his heir. He was probably okay with Arian being unmarried when Daron was his heir. But once Arian became his direct heir, well, you gotta have the prince get married. And at least it had this merit, as I said, of uniting Rhaegal's branch with Makar's. But there's a whole other branch of the family we haven't been mentioning for a while. By 228, during all this time where Arian was looking like he might inherit the throne, Arian's younger brother was starting a whole new branch, and this branch was getting big. Egg had married Black Betha. Black Betha Blackwood, that is. And they had four children by this time. This is a healthy branch, but a lot of people didn't want this branch to ascend to the throne. They may have liked the idea even less than Arian ascending, which is kind of hard to believe, but you got to remember, Egg... Though people saw him as brave, they did not like his closeness with the commoners. They did not like how hard he pushed for reform. Remember, when he became king, he pushed hard for reforms and was successful in creating a lot of them to make life easier for the commoners and take power away from the lords. Tywin eventually undid all that. But Egg pushed for this stuff before he was king. He pushed for it as prince as well. So the lords were well aware of his attitudes and knew that this is what he would do if he became king. So some of them preferred the crazy Aryan, the cruel, crazy Aryan to the idea of Egg ever being king. But at the time, they didn't have to worry because Aryan's older than Egg, Aryan's in the line of succession, and he's alive. And no reason to think he's just going to die suddenly. So we have to ask ourselves, but why would people be worried about Egg ever ascending the throne? Well, that, to us, hints that there were questions about the succession, even though on paper it seems kind of clear. And again, we're told that the succession was a huge issue during Makar's time. So we do know it was an issue. We're only guessing at why. Uh, maybe we don't have all the right guesses or the right order, but we do know it was a problem. So when Stannis says, when I die, you got to put Shireen on the throne. That's not really a plan so much as it is a command to follow the law. <laughs> it's... And it's not even a good plan. And it's not even the law, necessarily. And the law often gets ignored in the favor of big armies <laughs> setting aside that. Because, uh, yeah, many would argue that Shireen can't inherit anyway. But that's a whole nother point. Makar would have simply expected Daron to inherit, then Arian. Because that's the law. But good lord, that's awful. Allowing Arian to inherit is kind of unthinkable. A reign from a madman like him could give the Blackfires another opening. If he's just being Ares II, like torturing people, being cruel, doing whatever he wants, which is the kind of guy he was, as we know, think about how that looks. 
Bloodraven could sit here and go, man, if that guy becomes king and starts just wrecking things and blowing out all of our loyalties amongst the High Lords, that just totally opens it up for the Blackfires to come and say, hey, look at who we have to offer. Our king is cool. He's not some crazy cruel guy. Now, World of Ice and Fire also says Makar's time was relatively peaceful despite this, these questions of succession and instability. Well, there was also a lot written about how there was a lot of turmoil caused by Makar's sons. Well, turmoil caused by Arian, okay, we know a lot about that. Turmoil caused by Egg, we know a bit about that because of his unpopularity and pushing for commoner-minded reforms. But Daron the Drunkard too, a problem because of his heavy drinking, his complete inattention to politics and all that. So what I'm saying is, of all the times we've raised the question of maybe Bloodraven did get involved in manipulating the succession, this of all the times is the one I think is the most likely. I'm not saying it's likely that he did it, but if we're ranking all the strange deaths, or just all the deaths among princes who were in the line of succession during this time span, Arian's death to me is the most interesting, even though the story tells us it's entirely self-inflicted, even though we're told Arian drank wildfire, right? It might seem like he just solved the problem himself. He drank wildfire, eh, that's that. We're told he was drunk, right? So what is there to think? Well, let me tell you. Maybe someone gave him strong wine that night like Lancel did for Robert. In a storm of swords, a man falls through a floor into an old cache of wildfire and drinks some. It kills him like it kills Arian. Both these guys were drunk. That guy thought it was wine. Arian probably didn't. Arian probably knew what he was doing. Well, I would say he knew what he was doing, but he knew what he was drinking. Maybe he wanted to prove himself a real dragon. Ares the Mad King thought wildfire would transform him into a dragon too. Just Targaryen things, I guess. But a very specific theory idea I have is maybe this was the night he found out he was now heir to the throne. Daron dies, he's like, oh, I'm the crown prince now, I'm gonna go out and get drunk. Not that he needs an excuse to get drunk, this sounds like the kind of guy that could just get drunk on a whim, but it would be nicely fitting if this worked out that way. Still, even though he's the crown prince, just imagine these circumstances, little how to crazy person to drunk just who gave him wildfire i mean you can't say no to him he's the he's the crown prince if he walks into the pyromancer's guild and is like give me some wildfire they can't say no but they probably would go warn somebody They're like tell the kingsguard that the crown prince is drunk and walking around with wildfire man just keep an eye on him unless they were in on it right maybe and what i mean by in on it is maybe they stood aside and let it all happen Maybe someone made the suggestion to Arian that fateful night in 232 to drink wildfire, suggesting that it couldn't kill a dragon. Fire can't kill a real dragon. Fire can make you a real dragon. Wildfire might make you a dragon. Egging him on in some form or fashion. Maybe someone used a little sorcery to enhance that suggestion. Maybe someone was wearing a moonstone brooch and watching intently as Arian drank deep from the wildfire that someone provided. Just a fun theory. Though surely they had to keep up appearances and a funeral would have been held, this would be a prince that few mourn. But it was a crisis averted for the realm and for Bloodraven, perhaps. But there were other problems. There are always other problems when you're the hand of the king. At the peak of winter. 
Like it had been for him at the start of his tenure as Hand, Bloodraven found himself dealing with forces of nature and rebellion. Not that far into Makar's reign. Around 223, a very long summer began that would last seven years. Here's where we come back to Pycelle, because Pycelle mentions living through it to Ned early in A Game of Thrones. He says that many were superstitious about this long summer, some in the most optimistic way possible. He said even some in the Citadel, not just commoners, but some in the Citadel, learned men, thought that this was the great summer come at last, the endless summer of legend. Okay. Pycelle also mentions to Ned how similar the long summer early in A Game of Thrones was to the great summer, quote unquote, of his youth. Huh. He speaks of extreme heat, but also extreme life, how the gardens and farms prospered, how humanity came alive at night when it was cooler. It's rather ominous because the implication is that winter will be the opposite. Extreme cold, extreme hostility to life, gardens and farms withering and humanity not exactly coming alive at night, death itself coming alive at night. Pycelle was more right than he'll ever know. The one of his youth was awful, but this one's a lot worse. Bloodraven lived through both as well and has a better handle on the situation, shall we say? But Pycelle's perspective is significant and really quite interesting because of, again, look how early George planted these seeds, man. This is super early. This is like Ned's fifth chapter, maybe? Whew, good job, George. In the year 230, that long summer ended. All of a sudden, a uh, brief autumn came and then winter came on hard and fast, just like what we're seeing in, well, A Dance of Dragons and then The Worms of Winter. We saw it in A Feast of Crows, too. In 233, we're now three years into what would turn out to be a six-year winter, House Peak. The same house that had three castles before the Blackfires were a thing. The same one whose lord was a key in both the first and second rebellions, now dead though, launched a rebellion. His descendants, his son maybe. On the surface, this is a bit crazy though, right? A single house that had been beaten soundly before when they had a lot of allies going up against the Iron Throne. Now? Up against Bloodraven and Makar? Huh. What's that all about? All right, well, let's talk about why it might not be so crazy, even though it did fail pretty majorly. First, that winter business, right? Starpike is pretty far in the south. Take a look at the map. So it's possible winter was just a lot less of a problem down there. Maybe it really crippled the north and sort of crippled the center of the continent, which would have meant King's Landing was hit pretty hard, which meant the peaks were like, hey, we can supply our armies, but they can't, so let's go for it. It's also possible Bittersteel did try to come on over and join this rebellion at the same time, but just never made it. We're told in the World of Ice and Fire that a certain Torwin Greyjoy betrayed Bittersteel after making a blood oath. We've mentioned this before, but here's where it needs to come up again. It's easy to see why the Greyjoys would ally with the Blackfires. One can guess that Bloodraven's punishments after the time of Dagon's reaving were substantial. Perhaps it harsh enough to create ill will, perhaps harsh enough to push the Greyjoys to consider joining a rebel faction. Hating Bloodraven enough to do that. It's easy to see them finding a core with Bittersteel, right? Because he hated Bloodraven more than anyone. If they hated Bloodraven, well, hey, that's something they have in common. But again, this, this betrayal could have come in the third rebellion. It could have come in the fourth rebellion or here at some point in between. The third rebellion was close. So if the Greyjoys switched sides then, it could have made all the difference. The fourth was such a disaster that, well, it, it could explain a lot. It could explain why it was such a disaster, but it would also explain this one. 
Let's say the Golden Company is just set to come over by ship at the same time the Peaks make their move. That makes a lot of sense. Like, do everything at once, right? Strike multiple uh, places at the same time to open up the uh, Rebellion. But it sure does stink when your ride bails on you, huh? <laughs> you and 10,000 of your friends stuck waiting while your other friends get slaughtered? Now, who could have possibly come in between such an arrangement? Hmm. We're not exactly supposed to imagine the Greyjoys simply changed their minds, are we? Or perhaps this was like the Second Rebellion, where the Greyjoys only pretended to have a grievance with Bloodraven. And were actually playing cat's paw, like the, the phrase. Kraken's paw? Raven's paw. Whatever animal hand equivalent metaphor is best, the point stands. The Greyjoys didn't want Bloodraven coming down hard on them again. Like, this this uh, theory works both ways. Yeah, sure, you can see why they might want to join with, with the Blackfires because of how mad Bittersteel made them, or how mad Bloodraven made them. But they could also just be like, oh, we're not getting into that again. We're not... <laughs> we're not going to suffer through that again. So, maybe they agreed to do this knowing they were going to betray... Bittersteel in the end. They just set them up. Say, hey, Bloodraven, I got an idea. Or maybe Bloodraven came to them and said, hey, Greyjoys, do this for me and we're cool again. Or the other way around. Greyjoys say, hey, Bloodraven, if we do this, you know, does this uh, make us cooler in your eyes? If we pretend to ally with the great, with the, uh, with Bittersteel and the Golden Company, and then we, uh, you know, don't show up and screw them over, eh? Eh? Help hook us up and we'll do that for you. So consider what was being asked here. One is go pick up the, the Golden Company, bring them over and participate in a rebellion. The other is just stay home, do nothing, and possibly create, uh, collect a reward for doing that. We got to stay home and got rewarded for it. All we had to do was lie to Bittersteel, who's a continent away and has no ability to get back at us. I could see that. But again, just a theory. It fits really well, but... Whether the Peaks had a terrible plan or just a plan that went terribly, they were basically in it alone. And Makar wanted to handle this one in person. He appears to have put himself in direct danger despite his dicey succession situation and his age. He was not yet 60, but was pretty close. He ordered the castle to be stormed and was somehow close enough to get crushed by a stone hurled from the battlements. Imagine that dude standing near TV Stannis during the Battle of the Blackwater who also got crushed by a rock. TV Stannis was leading from the front there too, though Book Stannis wouldn't do that. But Book Makar does lead from the front, and if we're being conspiracy-minded, we point out that Makar leading from the front or close to it is to be expected. People knew he would lead from the front. Hmm? So maybe he was targeted. Maybe the whole point was to get him into a battle. On the other hand, the aftermath was brutal, and if the Peaks stuck their neck out like this, they really weren't rewarded for it. We have yet another example of the Targaryens killing foes who had surrendered. Though, to be fair, it wasn't actually a Targaryen. It was just, it was done under the auspices of Targaryen control because they were running things here. It was a reign of Castamir that did it, right? How about that? I bet you guys weren't expecting the reigns of Castamir to pop up in this episode, but here they are. Roger Rain made Rickard Karstark look like a pansy. Two captive Lannisters? Pfft. Roger killed seven captive peaks and would have killed more if Egg hadn't stepped in to stop him. Roger wanted revenge for the death of his brother Robert, the Lord of Castamere, but also dying in the battle was Tywald Lannister. Here's where the Lannisters come back in. Robert Squire, an heir to Casterly Rock. That's Tywald. He was heir to Casterly Rock. Squire to the former Lord of Castamere who just died. And he was married to Ellen Rain. 
Ellen Rain, also of Reigns of Castamere fame. We're years before the, the incident with Tywin, but this is the formation of that. This led to it. So Tywald's death was huge because the Reigns were set to be the chief in-laws of the Lannisters. They would have, their kids would have been half Lannister, half Reign with the lordship of Casterly Rock. They would have been lords of ladies of the Rock itself, Ellen's kids. But Ellen was determined. She talked Tyon, Tywald's twin brother, into marrying her in his place. Tyon happened to be squire for Egg. This arrangement had to have been agreed upon by the head of each household, which would be Egg's father, King Makar, of course, and Lord Gerald the Golden, Tyon's father. This connection comes up huge not long after all this because the succession issues following Makar's death, well, during that, Egg is going to be a candidate, and his friendship with the Lannisters is going to come up big in helping him win it, though Tyon is going to die in the fourth Blackfyre Rebellion, three years after the death of Makar. That's going to all be thrown off, but by then, Egg's going to already be king. So these succession issues here are what we're speaking on when we make a lot of these comparisons to Stannis, and it hits particularly hard here. Stannis seems to consistently underestimate other people's view of the law. He holds it in extremely high regard, but kind of willfully forgets that others don't. Makar may have felt similarly, or just took it for granted that upon his death, the proper laws would be followed. In a sense, they were. And Makar's son, Egg, did get thrown, but not in the typical way following the death of a king. Egg on the unlikely truly is a fitting nickname. And here the comparison to Stannis might be painfully on point. Well, if you're a Stannis fan. Otherwise, it's just on point without the pain. Makar died during the midst of a bitter winter, and that's probably going to be how Stannis goes out too, though it'll be against a much greater foe than the Peaks, and probably not to a giant rock. But hey, maybe. If a castle wall or tower falls on him, remember who called it. The Great Council The World of Ice and Fire Rather than risk another dance of the dragons, the king's hand, Blood Raven, elected to call a great council to decide the matter. In 233 AC, hundreds of lords, great and small, assembled in King's Landing. With both of Makar's elder sons deceased, there were four possible claimants. The great council dismissed Prince Darren's sweet but simple-minded daughter, Viola, immediately, only a few spoke up for Arian Brightflame's son, Magor. An infant king would have meant a long, contentious regency, and there were also fears that the boy might have inherited his father's cruelty and madness. Prince Aegon was the obvious choice, but some lords distrusted him as well, for his wanderings with his hedge knight had left him half a peasant, according to many. Enough hated him, in fact, that an effort was made to determine whether his elder brother, Maester Aemon, might be released from his vows. But Aemon refused, and nothing came of it. With the death of the king, the weak succession potential became reality. The normal, technical legal heir following past precedent would be Arian's son, Magor. But as it says, there was no support for him, as people were worried he'd be as insane as his father. And as a baby, it was too soon to tell, so you can't risk that. But what's the deal here? Why does he, why is he worried then a Dance of the Dragons? Why is he worried that that would happen? It doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. Because if this main claimant didn't have a lot of support, well, where's the danger coming from? I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. This could be 
Bloodraven just doing what he could to help steer the succession in a good way. And that's why I said this was legal. Calling a great council is totally legal, even though the normal way to go would be to just give the crown to baby Magor. Now, another thing to be interested in here is that if Magor had the throne passed to him, Bloodraven probably stays on as regent. That way he, meaning he rules through this baby for like 15 years. If he was an ambitious guy who wanted to wield power through a puppet, then he would want this. He would push for this and he would have been easy. He could say, look, he's the heir, period. Boom, that's it. There's no argument. He's the legal heir. Instead, he was like, nope, great counsel. So he went directly against something that could have benefited him. So clearly he didn't want it. Well, almost clearly. It might be surprising to see no support for that baby Magor, but on the other hand, probably not. I, I, I don't, I'm not surprised because think about who his father was. Arian probably didn't have a lot of friends and the ones he did have, well, they either let him or encouraged him to drink wildfire. So what kind of friends are those? <laughs> it might be, uh, yeah, it might be more to that whole story, but whatever we know, Arian, there's almost no way that guy was popular. Either way, Bloodraven would have been at the center of this debate. Whatever is happening, whoever is being pushed for the throne, whoever, whatever candidates are being backed by who, Bloodraven's in the middle of it all, including the crowning itself, right? That's got to at least partially go through him. I feel strongly that he was against baby Magor because of all the stuff I just let out. And again, I think he was against Denora and Arian's marriage because he did not accept their child <laughs> as, as the true heir. If he had accepted their child as the heir, why would he have been for their marriage? Doesn't make sense. So here's where we wonder if he has any sympathies for his own Blackwood heritage. Because Egg's kids and Egg's wife, Betha, well, that's Blackwood. He might have liked the idea of a Blackwood queen. Others might have wondered about that too. Others might have thought, hey, is he trying to angle for his family to get the throne here? Is he angling for Egg? I don't know. They might have. I think somebody probably would have noticed that. You can't forget that he's part Blackwood. So... I don't know. Uh, they and, he, and their kids would have the same ice and fire pairing that he would have, right? Blackwood with Targaryen. I wonder what that meant to him. I wonder if there was any conspiracy stuff going on with in terms of his interpretation of prophecies or him thinking that maybe this was the guy that needed to be on the throne. It's possible. Either way, I'd like to know what he was thinking. <laughs> the world of ice and fire. Even as the Great Council was debating, however, another claimant appeared in King's Landing. None other than Aenys Blackfire, the fifth of the Black Dragon's seven sons. When the Great Council had first been announced, Aenys had written from exile in Taroche, putting forward his case in the hope that his words might win him the Iron Throne, that his four bears had thrice failed to win with their swords. Bloodraven the King's Hand had responded by offering him a safe conduct, so the pretender might come to King's Landing and present his claim in person. If I had to guess, I'd say Bloodraven sat back, let others do the debating, let it play out, let the process play out, let factions form and break and, and all that. He didn't want to seem like he was taking sides. Just my, just my guess. But then that letter arrived from Aenys Blackfire, and then I think Bloodraven probably had a very definitive opinion, because he doesn't really mince feelings when it comes to Blackfires. He just, well, he just hates them, and doesn't have uh, nuanced views on them. So the letter being from Aenys Blackfire is a big deal, but it's also important to note that we've got a couple of people kind of jumping out of line here. We have... Magor not 
inheriting the throne, even though he was in the direct line of succession. And we have Aenys Blackfire saying, hey, my claim is strong. Let me come make it. But the son of the fourth son comes before the fifth son. Damon III, son of Hagon, still alive, still crowned, still backed by Bittersteel. But Aenys is like, eh, here I come. I'm coming to uh, say that I'm the best candidate for king. It may not have been coincidence that this nonviolent attempt came during a time when armies probably weren't feasible. Remember, I was just talking about how that big old winter was blazing through the, the, the kingdom. Not likely that uh, big armies were possible. It could have been called the Great Council of Winter, <laughs> but uh, it's just the Great Council of 233. Remember, that's part of why Makar may have rushed things at Starpike. You can't have a siege in winter. You can't feed your people. So that's probably why he ordered the storming of Starpike, because you got to get it over with quickly. Aenys was given that safe passage that he asked for, and as he expected to make his case to the assembled lords, many of whom who had Blackfire loyalties and or hated Bloodraven, he may have been thinking, this is my moment, this is my moment. I'm a, kid. I'm a child of destiny. Maybe thinking a bit like his brother Damon II. Maybe he had dragon dreams. Probably not, but, you know, it's possible. He may have thought the omens were good because he's the fifth son of Damon Blackfire and he's the fifth candidate here at the Iron Throne's Great Council. Yeah. Instead, upon his arrival, Bloodraven told him, get down on your anies and then cut his head off. Okay, now Bloodraven probably didn't make that pun, but I wouldn't be surprised if he made a joke because he's a pretty sarcastic guy. Early in the episode... I compared Bloodraven to Joffrey a little bit. Uh, but here's another moment where that parallel goes pretty deep. Cooler Heads wanted Ned Stark sent to the Wall after letting him speak and admitting his treason. Even Ned himself expects to go to the Wall because everyone from Cersei to Varys to himself knows it would be pretty insane for them to kill him. But as we know, that's exactly what Joff does. Orders his head cut off all of a sudden, condemning him based on the words he just spoke. He says, look, see, he just admitted to treason. I'm, I'm not going to let this traitor go to the wall. Traitors die. This is remarkably similar to Bloodraven's decision to execute Aenys. Aenys made a claim by letter. Bloodraven lured Aenys with a promise of letting him make that claim in person, then condemned him to death upon his arrival. A deal? That deal broken? And an execution for treason that wasn't truly committed. Bloodraven showed the head to the council as a warning to those who may harbor Blackfire sympathies. What a thing to do at a great council. <laughs> It's important to remember most lords are probably like Lord Walder Frey's father. Meaning, they're not sure what side to be on. They just want to be on the winning side. They, they, they want to be loyalists probably because that side seems stronger. But they're not like in love with this regime. They're not like, we follow Bloodraven and Makar because they're the best. Follow them because they're king in hand and that's what you do. And going against that gets you killed. Here's where I have to explain Blackfire sympathizer doesn't mean secret Blackfire. It doesn't mean hardliner loyalist infiltrating and just keeping their secrets hard in their heart, keeping their real loyalties tight, but pretending to be a loyalist all along. That's not really who, what it means. There's probably a few like that. It just means someone who might, if circumstances went the right way, back the Blackfires because it would be to their benefit, because it's it would be in line with their existing goals. They aren't willing to take a big risk. They're not in it for idealistic reasons, most of them. They don't hate the Targaryens or the Blackfires. They just want to come out ahead. They just mostly would rather stay out of all of it, but they can't because they're lords and ladies that are involved in a political scale. They're expected to contribute. They're expected to send men or money or both. They have to take a side. So they take the side that's safer. That's just how most of them do it. 
That's kind of the point though. Bloodraven is being so demonstrative. He's like, here's this guy's head. He's like, even if you're just 1% loyal in your, even if you have the slightest consideration for switching sides, even if it's just, oh, I wouldn't switch sides unless something, something happened first. That's the only way I would ever, Bloodraven's like, no. Under no circumstances will you flip sides. Do not even think about it. And this is what happens if you do. But that's kind of over the top, right? It just acts, he's, he's kind of more acting scared rather than being demonstrative. It seems kind of weak. It seems like he's afraid of something that isn't a real threat. Now, making a claim against a sitting king is definitely treason. But the point of a great council is to select a new king based on all available claims. Though it was odd because of Aenys' elder brother being ahead of him, Aenys did not commit treason. He may have committed treason against his own brother, but he didn't commit treason against the Iron Throne in saying, hey, can I make a claim? Can I come to the council and make a claim? That's not treason. So there was no legal right here for Bloodraven to execute him. Cersei, I think, would approve of Bloodraven's actions here, nor would she have trusted him were she in Aenys's place. She, no, to be fair, she wouldn't have been like, oh, he says I can come and make my case. Okay, then I'm coming. She wouldn't have believed in a promise or a paper shield either. Laws and rules don't matter here. This is the Game of Thrones where swords have the final say, or dragons, or shadow babies. Yeah, you know what I mean. Violence wins when it really comes down to it, sad to say. And it was Cersei who said to Ned, there is no middle ground. You win or you die. Aenys did not win. Just as technically, Ned was right that Stannis was the true heir. Ned didn't really commit treason, but he also did not win. Maybe Cer Cersei's probably not going to win either, but between Cersei and Ned, Cersei came out ahead in the short term. Clearly, there are huge differences between the two executions as well, but it's a good comparison. Bloodraven did what he did, whether he was thinking of Bittersteel's escape on the way to the wall, or whether Aenys was actually like a charismatic, convincing speaker who actually could have made a strong case. Well, maybe this is gonna be a life lesson he shares with Bran and we'll learn more about what he was thinking. It seems he wanted to take no chances. He's like, look, any Blackfire is a threat. I don't care how small of a threat it is, we're gonna kill this guy. But ironically, not wanting to take chances to that degree was itself a huge risk. When he executed Aenys, he probably didn't see what came coming. He didn't think that he would be punished for. He probably thought he could get away with it. He probably expected the pushback to be pretty mild, something he could deal with, something that would just maybe further harm his already destroyed reputation. Here's how that went when the final decision came. The assembled nobles swayed in no small part by the eloquence, and some suggest the gold, of Lord Gerald the Golden, ultimately awarded the Iron Throne to Prince Aegon. Ironically, Aegon would later push reforms that Lord Gerald's grandson Tywin would later undo. Tywin would also slaughter all those reigns and have a famous song written about it. But that's, again, another story. But the caveat, the reason this all relates is that quote about Gerald's fine persuasive speech, which, by the way, is not found in the World of Ice and Fire. It was cut for probably for space considerations. It's possible the info changed, but more likely it was cut for space. So we're considering that uh, canon, but call it a strong maybe. If it's true, though, and the part about bribes is true, Bloodraven would have seen that coming. He probably knew about the bribes, right? Just like Varus would know when money changes hands. I think Bloodraven was probably able to capture a lot of that same behind-the-scenes stuff. 
He would have seen these connections between the families too. In general, he saw a lot coming. A thousand eyes and one after all. But I don't think he saw this coming. The world of ice and fire. The first act of Aegon's reign was the arrest of Brendan Rivers, the king's hand, for the murder of Aenys Blackfire. But Raven did not deny he had lured the pretender into his power by the offer of a safe conduct, but contended that he had sacrificed his own personal honour for the good of the realm. Though many agreed and were pleased to see another Blackfire pretender removed, King Aegon felt that he had no choice but to condemn the Hand, lest the word of the Iron Throne be seen as worthless. Yet after the sentence of death was pronounced, Aegon offered Bloodraven the chance to take the Black and join the Night's Watch. And that's just what he did. After spending most of his career under his own White Dragon banner, fighting the Black Dragon on behalf of the Red Dragon, he traded it all in, all the dragons and ravens, left it all behind. And that's what it means when you join the Night's Watch, right? You give up your family and take on a new one. Considering how poorly Brynden's own experience with brothers had been, maybe the thought of going to a place where everyone's your brother, that might not sound good. Uh, but maybe it's preferable to being executed. Still, Maester Aemon was going at the same time. They'd have a lot to talk about, prophecy and dragon dreams, much and more. That's a lot of what part three will be about, as I said earlier. And there's that excellent library up there at Castle Black, too. That's nice. Something to look forward to. And some of the raven's teeth took the black with him. Men he'd likely known a long time and respected and trusted. He'd need that. He's going to a place where he'd probably have some enemies, right? He probably sent people to the wall. <laughs> probably a lot of people to the wall. I mean, maybe he preferred executions, but some of the men probably went to the wall and they'd be waiting for him, maybe with revenge in mind. And he'd have to call him brother, and they'd have to call him brother. And well, eh, he's used to brothers who want to kill him. One of them took out his eye, after all. It'd be cold, but one thing's for sure, he'd have a lot less responsibility, right? At least he wouldn't be in charge of protecting the realm anymore, right? Right? <laughs> like Tywin mixed with Varys mixed with the Song of Ice and Fire itself. That's kind of what Blood Raven is. That's where I'm at after all this. And it's only episode two, right? We still got another one. We got a part three, which seems fitting for the third longest tenured hand of the king. The rule of three here. One thing that strikes me is Bloodraven's political career throughout it all, the way he manages himself as a ruler and in terms of actual policy and personality, it's, it's so set up really well by his early life and his upbringing and the circumstances of the realm around him. In real life, there's a lot of debate over nature versus nurture. And it's pretty clear to me that Brendan Rivers, you could say there's a lot of both going on. He has magical blood. That's purely a matter of nature. He has blood from families that come with baggage. Blackwood and Targaryen being born into natural rivalries. That's kind of a bit of both. The stigma of bastardy is a cultural thing, so that's kind of a nurture thing. But he is, by nature, a bastard. And a lot of hate. A lot of hate throughout his career directed at him. Much of it undeserved, aimed at him for that bastardy and his appearance but also because of that Blackwood Bracken thing that he was raised in, and Targaryens and Blackfires, bitter steel. He, he just had a lot of hate around him. He was accustomed to feeling it, having it directed at him, etc. Most people who hated the Blackfires didn't hate them before the rebellion. They were hardly a thing at all. They weren't, it wasn't a thing to hate. It was just a, a guy who was popular that was an important figure at court and around the realm, but the idea of him having a huge faction and, and rising up to rebel, that was a slow, gradual thing. 
Bloodraven hated Bitter Steel from the get-go. So I, you know, he carried all this from a very early age, this concept of, of hatred and dealing with these things in a certain way, in an emotional way. It might be what led him to misjudge the situation with Anis. It might have been, hey, I know I'm over the top a little bit, but it's okay because everyone else is it kind of feels this way, sort of. They're, you know, he thinks that everyone hates the Black Flyers almost as much as him. When actually, it's, <laughs> the difference is much larger. I wonder what Bloodraven was thinking down in the Black Cells. And again, I can't help but think of Ned Stark. Ned cursed himself as a blind fool. Thrice damned. There's that three again. Ned was unwilling to go far enough, whereas Bloodraven went too far. Well, it's kind of similar in that regard. The wall for them both <laughs> was the result, although... Ned didn't actually go to the wall as planned, but Bloodraven did. Some would argue that this was all planned by Bloodraven, meaning while Ned left Winterfell to play politics right when summer was ending and winter was coming, Bloodraven left politics to head north during a hellish winter because he knew what was coming. Many think by the point that he went to the wall, that he was woke. And he was ready to head north to explore these connections to the old gods, to figure it all out, to begin waging war against the one true enemy, to start getting ready for something that was still a while off, but would be such a big battle that you gotta get it started now. Maybe he wanted to see the library at Castle Black. Maybe he thought there were secrets there that would unlock the rest of what he needed to have the full picture. Why would that be? Well, we know a lot of books were burned in the Seven Kingdoms, under the order of Baylor the Blessed. We also know that Castle Black didn't follow those orders quite as closely. The command, in general, wasn't followed as closely up there. Some think that after the seven-year summer and three, eventually six-year winter, he had better ways to serve the realm in mind. That he was far from a thrice-damned blind fool, as Ned put it, but really he was far above the game, above the Game of Thrones. He, like a raven. You know, I can't say that's impossible. It sounds cool. It sounds interesting. It sounds wow. I think it's tempting because he's so powerful and outstanding to think of him in terms like this, in terms of conspiracies and long-term planning. But I'm dubious of that. I'm dubious he knew the re repercussions for executing Aenys. I I'm dubious he's like, I'm going to go north anyway. I'm going to just take out one more Blackfire on my way out the door just because I can and might as well. I do think George has presented things in a way that that opinion is valid. I just don't share it. This is a story that focuses on realism in characters who are in an unrealistic setting. Brendan Rivers is perhaps the most unrealistic character in terms of his inborn abilities uh, and his supernatural talents, but he's still human. He's still in a human story that's focused on humans, even though it's in an inhuman setting. So I think it would be a little much for this guy to just plan everything, to not make mistakes, to not have emotions that lead him astray like everyone has. It's just that his were so important because they were so visible because he's handed the king and all of his actions had consequences. So that's where I'm at. I, that's what I think. I think he's flawed. He's human, just a very powerful supernatural human. Uh, but we'll probably never get a direct answer on it. But there's a chance because he's still alive and he's still having conversations with Bran. But more likely we'll get from him other unknowns, other answers. And we're not done yet with him. So we'll see other things. So 
For Brendan Rivers, going to the wall to take the black was obviously life-changing, and he had a career like none other as Hand of the King, Master of Whispers, a leader of men in battle, a spy, a sorcerer. Yeah, how do you match all that? Yet somehow his experience on the wall does. It does match all that, and it's more relevant to A Song of Ice and Fire proper. So it's just as interesting or more so. After all, like his unique time as Hand, his tenure on the wall was like no other brother of the Night's Watch ever. And that means he's going to be awesome to explore his time up there, his connections, guessing at what might have happened, all the different people that are going to be on the wall with him. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have great fun making it and presenting it to you. Can't wait. In part three of that deep dive on Bryn Rivers, which we're calling the Three-Eyed Blood Raven, yeah, we'll do just that. Behind the camera, behind the scenes, and behind a lot of things that you don't see, Shay is the best. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the video intro and the maps that we use all over this and many of our episodes. Big thanks to Rainey's Targaryen for helping me with the fact-checking and making a few suggestions for the script. It's always good to be as accurate as possible. She really helps with that. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koal for the intro and outro music. Voice work was done by Camille Stoner, as well as Valkyris, who you can find on Vassals of Kingsgrave. He's done a lot of other readings, which you can find on YouTube and in other places with his great voice. Huge shout-out to both of them for making this episode come to life a bit more. As I mentioned at the beginning, Stephen Atwell had a big part in helping me with all the details of this episode. His help was invaluable. His input was huge. Check out his work on racefortheirontheone.com. But of course, you're also familiar with him from some of our previous Blackfire episodes, as well as his appearances with many other creators throughout the film. We wouldn't be here without our Patreon supporters. This show literally would not exist. So thanks very much to all those who make it possible via their long-term support. That consistency allows us to keep growing, and it makes us feel really grateful. So if you want to join in, go to patreon.com slash historyofwesteros, pick the level that's right for you, and check out all the benefits we have to offer. Our Hand of the King is the mysterious VR. Lady Suzanne Sinistral is the learned, holder of the left-handed Valyrian shears called Penance, Hand of the Beard. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog and Two Wage War podcast is our Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by Flagship Caraxes and the Bloodstone Fleet led by Flagship Prince Damon. Charlotte Oster is Corsair Queen of the Western Shivering Sea, commander of the Briny Fleet, whose flagship is the barnacle-encrusted Violet-Hulled Mercenaria. She carries the nacre-inlaid shucking blade Crassfoot. Lord James Tuttle and Charlotte Oster have engaged their men in a contest of who can make the best werewood ship. The cost is extraordinary, but neither seem daunted by it. Our small council consists of Lord James Inklade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whisperers, Lord Robert Jacobs, Master of Coin, Lord Daniel, the Sneaky Russian, Master of Ships, and Grand Maester Via James. Our stalwart lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges, Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort, Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood is Lady of Desert Rose, Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass, Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep, 
Ashlyn Winter, the Hawkeye, is Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglades. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is guardian of the hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, dual-wielding Glorious Morning and Little Light Wise. Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, Strength and Courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Iron Werewood. Listen for the silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Lady Baelish is Dark Widow of Harrenwood. Lord Sidney Jesse is the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring. Sir Valentin of House to Jen is creator of the Game of Predictions, Free Game of Thrones Predictions Futures Market. Lady Leanna Kelly of Wolf Island is Protectors of the Steelhold. And last but not least, Casey Stark of House Acres. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our King's Guard is commanded by the Smiling Wolf Lord Commander Stephen Stark, cartographer of kings who earned a white cloak through wisdom and learning as much as skill at arms. The Beard Guard includes Lord Commander George the Golden, Sir Joshua Oakheart the White Oak, Lady Rita of the Copper Main the Unbound, Dance the Fervor, Sir Jeff Wharton of the AC, wielder of Triad, the multifaceted beard of platinum red and brown, Stay Frosty. Sir Tim Corgyle is Mad Boy of the Western Desert. Some recent additions include one with no name, knower of little, Archmaester Travis, keeper of the Nightfire, wanderer on the waves, Lady Tanya of House Allen, wardeness of the Northeast Dallas Locks and Woods and Mistress of Books, Lady Dinell of House Joyce, the Light in the Dark, Sir PJ of House Moon, a warrior bard wielding the Valyrian Steel Six String, but still loyal to the one true king. The Lord Commander of History of Westeros' Night's Watch is Benjen Umber, the silent giant wielder of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword Winter's Kiss. The First Ranger is Fabian Flowers, the Bastion of Greenshield. The First Builder is Patchface of Motley Wisdom. First Steward is Sir Jurion of the Torrentine, called Palewind. That concludes this episode of History of Westeros. We hope to see you next time. Thank you for listening, and you know what's next. Valar, reread us.